Welcome folks to topic 9. So today we're going to talk about cardiovascular system and disorders. Technically speaking, this topic is quite huge. So it is uh, really, it's technically spend days and then there's even special class or special units for this uh, particular topic. It's almost impossible to include everything in this uh, very small lecture. Uh, and there's technically three parts to this lecture. So the first part uh, will be kind of covering the anatomy and physiology of this particular lecture. And then after that, we will go into disorder of uh, the lecture itself. So without further ado, let's uh, get to it, okay? So first, uh, this is one of the big thing that you will actually see on your exam. A uh, big portion uh, going to be in your next quiz, uh, next, and uh, also your final exam as well. Okay, huge part. So we're going to talk about the anatomy of the blood supply, anatomy of the blood supply. We'll come back to this little picture uh, later on, but for right now, let's just look at the anatomy. So. Uh, when we talk about circulatory system, there's a pulmonary and a circuit, s circuit system, the pulmonary uh, or systemic system. Uh, pulmonary is basically going from your heart to your lungs, and then the systemic system is all the way to the rest of your body and come back to your heart again. Um, when we talk about circulatory system, you have pretty much two sides of your heart. You have the right side right heart and the left heart. The right side is pretty easy, you're just pumping to the lungs. So not pumping that far, just pumping the, the old blood that need to put more oxygen in the blood to the lungs. Uh, usually it's low pressure. Vein again, vein usually doesn't have any pressure at all. Whereas left side of the heart just actually have tons of pressure. It's gonna pump to the rest of your body, which is more important. And usually that's what we look at on the left side of the heart rather than the, the right. Uh, again, the arteries always, uh, remember artery A for artery, also A for away. So anything that's going away from the heart, we call it arteries. And anything going to the heart is called the veins, okay? Uh, VT, so v veins to the heart. Okay, or TV to the heart, vein. Okay, so artery A and A, uh, artery away, artery away. Okay, capillaries are small little blood vessels, which actually this is where you exchange blood, uh, you exchange the gases and nutrients that actually occur, the interstic interstitial space. Um, so this is showing the pulmonary circuit and the systemic circuits. So pulmonary circuit, which is gonna be on your left here. On the top left, this is uh, going from your lungs to, I'm sorry, your heart to your lungs, and then come back to your heart again. And the uh, systemic circuit is leaving from your left side of your heart, going to the whole entire body, and then come back in the vena cava and come back to the right side of the heart again, okay? Uh, usually it go from the aorta, which is has the most pressure. Uh, aorta is the highest pressure. So, and then going less and less pressure, the least pressure is the vena cava, which is the vein. Okay, that's the least pressure. And this is the reason why 
one of the biggest reasons why we draw blood from your vein. If you were to trying to draw blood from your arteries, you stick that needle in. That needle gonna e- you can e- that needle gonna be ejecting back at you, and you have to unless you will hold it hold it really tight. But if you do, uh, the blood that's gonna come out gonna shoot right in your face. Uh, even shooting the uh, the test tube uh, that you're collecting those blood right into your face. So. Uh, that's why we never draw blood from your your arteries because it's too much pressure, plain and simple. Okay, uh, mediastinum is the l- m- location right in the middle of your heart. You have um, your aorta. You have your um, the esophagus running in the back there as well. Your diaphragm on the bottom. Uh, the heart wall, you have th- uh, four layers. Technically, you have pericardium, which is on the outside, epi on the outside of the heart as well, uh, myocardium, which is the muscle layer, and then endocardium, which is the inside, uh, P-E-M-E, if you want to remember that, remember it that way, P-E-M-E, pericardium, epicardium, myocardium, and endocardium. Heart pericardium again is on the outside wall. Think of it like when you purchase a new iPhone or new computer, you have this nice hard box on the outside, really thick box. So the box itself is really thick layer of pericardium, just very similar to that. Whereas the thin little plastic wrap inside, um, you know, your iPhone, your precious iPhone, is the uh, the uh, epicardium, which is a thinner layer right on top of the heart uh, is the covering of the heart on the outside that's the epicardium okay usually there's a space between pericardium and epicardium and there's there's flu fluid filled space and there's uh, the main purpose is to reduce friction uh, there's also a space between the pericardium and other organ the lungs specifically to help reduce the s- uh, surface tension again friction as well okay so pericardial activities, you have again the parietals and visceral layer space. So the visceral is the epicardial, technically, ep- epicardium. Uh, that's the same layer. So sometimes we call it uh, visceral pericardium. Technically, it's AKA epicardium. Uh, parietal epicardium, a uh, pericardium is the uh, that's the outside. That's the pericardium outside itself. Okay. Again, three layers of the heart shown in here. You ha- the thickest one is actually the myocardium. That's the thickest layer, which is makes sense because that's the muscle wall that used to squeeze all the blood out of your heart to the rest of your body. Okay, chamber of the heart. Yeah, sound like a song. Chamber of my heart. Um, so you have four chambers. <laughs> four chambers. Uh, you have the atrium. Atrium I- referring to the top top level so if you think of the house the atria um, of the house the atrium or the atria of the house usually is the, the the one on the top the second floor or technically it's right on top between this the first floor and the second floor so it is the floating floor basically so that's the atrium just like your heart that's how scientists are not creative they name what they see so uh, since it's kind of floating on the top they call it atrium there's a right side and a left side and there's, there's a wall that between the right and the left, that's the interatrial septum. Inter means between, between atrial septum. So septum that's between the atrium. 
and the bottom floor is the ventricle so it's technically it's like a vent you actually have a ventilation vent that getting the stuff out so just like you know just think of an old house that have a swamp cooler kind of thing on the bottom part there's a vent vent system on the bottom of the house and that's the ventricles you have the right side and the left side okay right side and the left side okay and always remember always remember the left side is the one that's the thicker uh, has the thickest uh, portion of the heart because the right side only pumps to the lungs you don't need to pump that far to the lungs so like no big deal i don't need to pump really really far therefore the left side is actually very very thick to pump that blood out uh, to the rest of your body so your left side is a lot bigger huge on uh, the valves you actually have four valves uh, two of them are called atrioventricular valves AV valves, so atrioventricular, just like the name, is between the atrium and the ventricle. Atrium and the ventricle, so atrioventricular valves. And it's a one-way one valve. Yes, sound like German. One-way valve. So one-way valve, which means it's supposed to flow one direction. Yes, just like the band name, one direction. So going one direction, you're not supposed to go uh, backward. Okay. Um, just one way, just going one way, one direction. Okay, you're not supposed to go the other way. Um, when that happens, we have problems. So, AV, you have two AV valves. One is on the right, uh, right AV valves, and then one is on the left, left AV valves. The right one, also called tricuspid valve. Tricuspid valve, that's since um, there's three leaves, three leaflets, uh, we call it tricuspid. And on the one on the left is called bicuspid or mitral valve. Mitral valve or bicuspid. Since there's only two leaflets, we call it bicuspid. Okay? So there's tons of names for these, I know. Um, scientists just like to confuse you by creating tons of names. So so on the right, so these valves also called AV valves. Uh, they could also go by right AV valves or left AV valves. The right one is also called tricuspid. The left one also called bicuspid and also called mitral valve. Um, always remember try before you buy. So try is on the right, buy is on the left. So you try, you try on the right and then you buy on the left. So try before you buy. So it has to go through the tricuspid first before you get through and go through the bicuspid valve okay so try before you buy uh, the reason we call it mitral valve the my bicuspid valve is because it looks like a mitre which is the the, the cardinal or the pope hat uh, if you are catholic and you've seen one of those masses uh, the cardinals or the popes usually wear this long uh, elongated hat uh, that's called mitre and that's where the, the, the word mitral valve comes from, because it looks a lot like that hat. The mitral valve looks a lot like that two-leaflet hat. Okay, two other valves you have is called semilunar valves. Semilunar valves, so look like, somewhat look like a moon, the valve that look like a moon. There's two of them. One going through the lungs, called pulmonary, or pulmonic semilunar valve, or pulmonary semilunar valve, same, same different, tomato, tomato. The other one that's leaving on the left side of your heart going to the rest of your body is called aortic semilunar valve. Aortic semilunar valve. Okay? 
So four vowels, you should know. Definitely know. We're going to go back and forth on those. You should also know the flow of the heart, how things are actually flow. So you should be able to list. Um, so please know this because you will see this on your exam. So you should be able to list down the flow of how it actually the current actually flow through the heart. So it goes in from the superior and inferior vena cava, go through the right atrium, go through the tricuspid valve, go through the right ventricle, through the uh, pulmonary semilunar valve, pulmonary trunk, pulmonary arteries, goes to the lungs, come back to the pulmonary veins, uh, left atrium, bicuspid valves or mitral valve, and then goes through the left ventricle, aortic valve, aortic semilunar valve, then ascending aorta, and then aortic arch. Okay, so just put this knowledge I know is quite uh, long, and the thing is, I for for, for once, for at least work for me, I don't try to not trying to memorize it by just uh, mnemonics or even um, um, just coming up with um, different mnemonics to remember this. But I, you know, personally, I like to just visualize it, visualize the heart, and then be able to just you know trace that flow of the heart of how it actually flowed through the heart. Okay, just visualize it. It would be a lot easier and better. Okay. So blood flow through the heart. You should know those. Uh, you should know the valves and you should know the heart pretty well. Okay. Um, vessel, there's different vessels going through your heart. Um, first, again, foremost is the biggest one is the superior and inferior vena cava. Those are the biggest one out there. Uh, that's coming in. So vena is vein, uh, cava is cave, is uh, a big huge vein that look like a cave. So superior is coming from your uh, your head, your torso, your arms, and your chest going into the superior. And uh, inferior is actually coming from your abdominal and below, draining blood from those areas and coming back to the inferior vena cava. Okay, and all of them goes and dump it in right atrium. All of them bring the the oxygenated blood, come back in and dump it on the right atrium. Then you have the right and left pulmonary arteries. Again, arteries going away from the heart, from your right ventricle to the lungs, and then bringing it back with the pulmonary veins, uh, carrying that oxygenated blood. Um, should know these should should know these two artery and veins pulmonary vein and pulmonary arteries they oftentimes ask you this on your exam because this is one of the, the weirder place um, that normally you have the oxygenated blood in your artery and uh, deoxygenated blood in your veins but this is the only place in your body that actually switch you have the pulmonary vein carry your oxygenated blood and then pulmonary arteries carrying your deoxygenated blood to the lungs so remember those and aorta is the, the the highest pressure of of the whole entire body you have this highest pressure vein so question one answer this below in your comment below blow a blood flow from pulmonary veins into the blank um, right atrium left atrium right ventricle left ventricle so answer that question below okay um, so we'll start 
talking about cardiac cycle, but I'll finish it on the off on the other video. Okay, so cardiac cycle basically is the one contraction of your heart. Okay, both the atrium and the ventricle. Okay, so keep that in mind when we talk about cardiac cycle is both contraction and relaxation of the heart of the atrium, the ventricle, and then relax. Both of them relax. Okay, so that's, that's one cycle. So contraction and relaxation of both, all four chambers, the atrium and the ventricle. And that's make up one heartbeat. The term that you should know, diastole, systole. Okay, diastole mean relaxation, systole mean contraction. Uh, pretty much the same term. Okay, also you want to add to this term, this lovely, lovely term, uh, you want to add the term for diastole, you also want to add um, repole, repolarization, and systole, you want to add depole, depolarization as well. So all of these mean exactly the same thing. So when we talk about diastole, mean it's relaxing, uh, that part of the heart is relaxing. Uh, repole is also mean relaxing. Okay, and diastole, repole, and relaxation is all mean the same thing. Systole mean contraction. Depolarization, depole is also contraction as well. So think of um, think of when you're going to Home Depot, uh, you get excited, you get contracting, you're like, oh, what can I buy? Uh, when you your car, you get repossessed, uh, repo, uh, you just relax. You're like, oh no, I don't have any car anymore. Just kind of shielding back because you can't drive your car. Just uh, one silly way to remember these terms, okay? Okay, so cardiac cycle, you have the atrial systole and ventricle, ventricle systole. Uh, and we're going to go into a lot more detail on cardiac cycle. And I'm going to show you another picture and kind of talk about these more in detail. But with this, uh, you have technically five phases. So I'm going to mention these five phases now, but then we'll go in more specific detail of what they are and where you're going to see them. So phase one, two, three, four, five, you have atrial systole, that's phase one, and ventricular diastole. So that's mean your atrial is contracting, your ventricle is relaxing. Phase two, you're going through something called isovolumic ventricular systole, isovolumic ventricles contraction. So you're seeing your ventricle start to contract, but no change in volume. And then you have ventricle ejection. That's when your uh, blood leaving the ventricle. And then you have isovolumic ventricular relaxation. That's when your ventricle start to relax after contracted, after one quick long day of contracting, they're just relaxing that one split moment. And then you have passive ventricular filling. So this is known as a U-wave. Uh, you might hear it filling up. Uh, your, uh, your ventricle is filling up. Okay, so we'll talk about these um, much more in detail in the next video. I don't want to drag this video way too, too long. So, okay, um, so we'll continue on the next video. Welcome back, folks, for part two. We're going to talk about the cardio cardiac cycle. Okay, we're going to talk about cardiac cycle. So this is one of the more important things that you definitely need to remember and need to know. Uh, this is the cardiac cycle graph. Uh, this is the cardiac cycle chart. And we're going to spend a little time on this one. Okay, we're going to start from the bottom and then we're going to go up. Uh, we're going to talk about all of these, uh, all of these lines, what it actually means. What I want you to notice a couple of things. The first is that there are actually two cycles here, two cardiac cycles. 
So you notice EKG, you have PQRST wave here, PQRST wave here. So this right here is one cycle, and then this is another cycle. So there are two cycles here. Okay, so let's first uh, start about talk about the bottom part, which is the phonocardiogram. Phonocardiogram is the sound of the heart, the sound of the heart. So what does the sound of the heart sound like? So you have two sounds. Generally speaking, you have these two sounds right here. So you have the lub and the dub. The lub and the dub. So always remember the、uh, the sound actually created by the closing of the valve. So think of a door. You open the door. Given that the door is not squeaky,、uh, you open the door. You don't. You shouldn't have any sound. But when you close the door or slam that door, you actually will have sound. So your valve just just works the same way. So the sound that you hear is the closing of the valves. Okay, closing of the valve. The first sound, the lub. Okay, the lub comes in at QRS, right after QRS, right、uh, when your ventricle actually contracting. So this is the sound of your AV valves. If you, do you remember what AV valves are? The two AV valves, the tricuspid and the bicuspid. So those are the sound that those two valves close at the same time. They actually close the the AV valves.、Uh, that's why you get this lub sound. The dub sound coming at the T wave is when you have your ventricles relaxing. This is the closing sound of your.、Um, Semilunar valves. So your semilunar valves close right here. This is when the semilunar valve close. So、uh, they both close at the sound. So you hear the second sound, which is the dub. So lub dub lub dub. So remember those. So lub is the closing of the AV valve. Dub is the closing of the semilunar valve. So dub semilunar lub is AV valves. Okay. So that's the first thing you need to know. The third sound is actually this is called the ventricular filling sound. This is the third sound.、Um, usually we it's a very faint sound unless you use a really good.、Um, Stethoscope or even ultrasound to actually hear this is very very faint sound. Most of the time you you don't hear them. Okay,、um, when we talk about the sound, something that you might want to know、uh, are the positioning of listening to the heart. And this is I say this you're gonna hopefully learn this in your health assessment class. But a lot of time nurses and doctors even. A lot of doctors that I know of forget how to listen to the sound of the heart. They actually just don't use it that often, so they actually don't, you know, know or they kind of forgot、uh, what where to listen to the sound of the heart. There are actually four spots, and the four spot spots corresponding to the four valves that you should be listening to. Okay, your phonogram should be four、uh, phonocardiogram should be listening through these four spots.、Uh, the way the mnemonic I, I always remember is a pretty tough mother. So a is for aortic valve. You could use other mnemonics here. You have all people enjoying Time Magazine. Or、uh, there's several other mnemonics that's out there. So, so aortic valve is on the top right. It's the second intercostal on the right side. That's the best spot to hear your aortic semilunar valves. You're like, wait a minute, it's up that high? Yes, it's up that high, and it's it, your heart is toward tilt toward the left.、Uh, so therefore, the the end the aortic valve actually will come out around there. So aortic semilunar valve is going to be heard at the second intercostal space, and the pulmon,、uh, pulmonic, which is pulmonary semilunar valve, is also heard at the second left intercostal space, so opposite from one another. So going to the lungs, you could hear it on the left. Going to the body, you could hear it on the right. So, and then you have、uh, the ERB point.、Uh, we usually don't listen to those as much.、Uh, But that's if you're gonna listen to one spot, that would be the spot to listen to. Okay,、uh, tricuspid、uh, is down, which is usually in about fourth or fifth intercostal border on toward the left.、Uh, that's the tricuspid, and the most important valves to listen to is the midline or medial midclavicular line、uh, on the fifth intercostal space, which is for the mitral valve, that's, because that's the valve that has the most problem. So oftentimes. Uh, most doctors honestly don't even listen to that one,、um, unless you're a cardiologist. You tend to listen to that specific one.、Uh, I know when I went to an eye doctor,、uh, and he pretty much had no clue. He just kind of put this, his stethoscope right in my sternum,、uh, actually toward my siphoid process and listening to whatever sound. I'm not sure what that would be,、um, but he had no clue what he was listening to for. Okay, so. 
uh, just know these, these locations because I'm sure you will be tested on this later on in your health assessment class. Uh, when you go out and see your patient, you need to be tested on this four spot. So um, this one has the ERB point as well, listening to your S1 and S2. Uh, if there's a murmur, you probably will hear it at the ERB point. Um, but the main four spot are the four valves corresponding to four valves. Okay? Let's go back to the cardiac cycle. Cardiac cycle. The second thing you should know from cardiac cycle is uh, the, EKG. the EKG. So you have the P wave here. Okay, the P, the Q, which is the little dip, the R, which is the peak, and then the S, which is the bottom part, and then the T here. Okay, we're going to talk about mainly these three, these these five spots. So the P is when you have your atrial depolarization, meaning that your atrial is contracting, or systole. So atrial systole, both of your atrium, uh, both of your atrial are contracting. So atrial systole happen at the P wave. The QRS, you have the ventricle ventricle systole. Your ventricles are contracting. Your ventricles are contracting at QRS. And then the T wave is you have ventricle repole or ventricular diastole. Okay, that's when your ventricles are relaxing. What's missing? Well, what's missing is your atrial repole or atrial diastole. That's happened at the same time at QRS. The problem is the QRS is much stronger. So this is, remember, we are measuring your electrical impulse. So you, we can only see the electrical impulse. Uh, so this QRS kind of overimpose on the, um, on the, the ventricle repole, the atrial repole, sorry, atrial repole or atrial diastole kind of imposed over by QRS. So just think of, you know, the atrial repole is buried somewhere in the QRS. So it happened at the same time. So put this in perspective, you have the atrium contracting, right here you have atrium relaxing and also the ventricle is contracting and then the P, the T wave is your ventricle actually contracting. Okay, so let's talk about the next few picture. So this one on the bottom, the red, is the volume, the ventricle volume. And we're only interested in the volume on the left ventricle. Left ventricle, why? Because that's the volume that you're going to send to the rest of your body. We don't really care so much about the volume on the right because it's just going to your lung big deals. So we do care more about the volume onto the left. So all of this picture here is uh, showing the amount of volume of blood that's being filled into your ventricle, your left ventricle. So as you can see here, as your atrium contracts, your atrium contracts, the volume goes up because now we're squeezing the blood out of your atrium down into your ventricle. Okay, squeezing all your blood from the atrium down into the ventricle. And as you can see, it kind of plateauing right here. And what happened at QRS? QRS is when your atrial are relaxing, your atrial are relaxing, and then your ventricles are starting to contract. So as you can see here, the ventricles start to contract. If you notice the blue line, ventricular pressure, pressure, as the ventricle contracts, the pressure goes up. The pressure goes up. The problem with this is the aortic valve, aortic valve still closed. Okay, your a a AV valves are closed. So you, that's the first love right here. Your AV valves, your bicuspid and tricuspid, both of them are closed. Okay, but your uh, aortic valves also closed at this point because the pressure is not high enough. The pressure has to be high higher than the aortic pressure. It's, aortic pressure is the pressure that pushing back. Okay, pushing back to your aorta. So let's say if you have a heart here, nice little heart. I'm not sure who ever had this heart. Uh, so this is your bike. Um, your left side, you have the bicuspid there, and you have the uh, aorta there. So this is your um, aortic valve, aortic semilunar valve. So you have pressure as it relaxes. You have this pressure pushing back to the uh, aortic semilunar valve to keep it closed. So the pressure inside has to be greater to push out that door. So imagine if someone is actually uh, standing behind the door and pushing the door as you're trying to open the door. So you have to push harder. You have to keep pushing harder, and you your force has to overcome his or her force in order that door to be open. Same thing with here. So as you contract, as the ventricle contracts, so imagine this with a bottle of water. So as you, um, if you pull out, pull out a little bit of water, 
just kind of left the top and pour out just a little bit of water. As you squeeze that bottle of water, uh, the, the water level rises, but it hasn't come out yet. So this is what happened right here. As you squeeze, the, the, blood, the blood level in the ventricle rises, the pressure goes up. The volume still stays the same because nothing has left the bottle of that water or the left, the left ventricle. Everything still stays in that left ventricle because nothing is open yet. So um, once the pressure is greater than the aortic valve, then the blood starts to go out. Okay, so as the pressure greater above the aortic uh, aortic pressure, therefore the valves become open. The aortic valves open, as you can see here. What happens to the volume? The volume starts to drop because now the blood starts leaving. Uh, all the blood starts to leave the uh, left chamber, left ventricle. Okay, so this period here, as you have the build-up pressure but nothing changed, we call that isovolumic contraction. Isovolumic contraction, something that you need to know. And you could make a note what happened at isovolumic contraction. What happens there? One, all of the valves are closed. All of the valves are closed. The uh, AV valves just brand newly just closed because of the uh, you start having contraction in your ventricle, so the, uh, the you don't want the blood to go up to the atrium, so that AV valve just closed. The aortic valve has been closed. Okay, the aortic valve has been closed uh, and ready to just be about open. The pressure is not high enough to open the valves just yet, so it has to keep the pressure has to go up. Uh, once the pressure is higher than the pressure that's pushing back to the valves, therefore the valves becomes open. Okay, so first thing that you need to know with isovolumic contraction, the volume doesn't change. Two, all the valves are closed. Three, you have the contraction. You're starting to have the ventricular systole. Ventricular systole. So that means you have your ventricle starting to contract. Um, ventricular systole or depolarization. So that's when your ventricle starts to contract. The volume hasn't changed. The pressure keeps going up, but all the valves are closed. All the valves are closed. So key thing to remember at the isovolumic contraction. So after the QRS, you have this ejection of the uh, blood to the rest of your body. Once the, uh, the blood volume goes down, the pressure starts to go down well. Okay. Once the pressure goes down, okay, uh, right here. Once it passes, okay. Once the uh, pressure goes down enough, the aortic valves close. Okay. The AV valves re still remain closed at this point, but once the aortic valves close, we also into this a little what we call a brief relaxation period. Just think of a little vacation for your heart every time it beats. It just works so hard. It just keeps beating all the time. This is a little relaxation time, a little R&R time for the ventricles. Okay, So this is what we call isovolumic relaxation. Uh, isovolumic relaxation is the opposite concept. Okay, that the volume doesn't change, but but a huge but here. But everything are closed still. Same thing. All the valves are closed, just like the contraction. But this is the time that everything all relax as well. The atrium are relaxing. The ventricle are relaxing. All valves are closed. So pretty much your heart just closed for business for that one split milliseconds, uh, a few milliseconds, one or two milliseconds. So this little tiny period, this is when your heart just completely relax. Okay, all of the muscle are relaxed, the ventricle are relaxing, the atrial are relaxing, all the valves are closed. So your heart typically closed for business. So the differences between isovolumic contraction and relaxation is one is contracting, one is relaxing. All valves are closed, all the volume are the same, not changing anywhere. Okay, once the pressure, the ventricle pressure is below, uh, below the atrial pressure, pressure that pushing from the atrium, the valves, the AV valves are open. Again, okay. This is what we call the ventricular filling. This is the third sound that you could hear in, if you listen, if you have really good ear. Um, you could be able to pick pick up the sound, or you use ultrasound to be able to pick up the sound. So this is the ventricular fil ventricular fillings, meaning that nothing is contracting yet, but the atriums, um, the um, the bicuspid and the tricuspid valves are open, and they're completely open because of the pressure. The pressure in the ventricle is dropped below the pressure that's coming from the top. Therefore, things are just filling up. Okay, but no contraction. Okay, no contraction. So you could see the blood volume start to fill up uh, into the ventricle due to gravity, and then not until the P wave when the atriums contract, that's when you squeeze a little bit more more blood.
uh, into the ventricle and then the whole process start all over again. Okay, so this is something to definitely know uh, all of these concepts, what the isovolumic contraction is, what the isovolumic, isovolumic relaxation is, uh, PQRST, you should know that, the love, the dub, all of these cardiac cycle, you definitely need to know all of these. Okay. Um, one more thing um, in terms of the electrical system. So think of the heart, it's like a pump, just exactly like a pump. Uh, nothing more, nothing, le not, nothing less. People saying that you love people with your heart, your heart doesn't love anyone, your heart is just a pump. Uh, doesn't sound as romantic, but it's the truth. You love people with your brain, not your heart. So next time when you see your loved ones, just saying, I love you with all my brain, uh, not all my heart, because my heart cannot love. Okay. So uh, you have two, two main things with the heart. You have two main um, structure, um, two main uh, categories, I would say. Um, so one is the structural system, we just covered all the structure, all the pipes, uh, just like a pump. You have pipes everywhere. And then the second, the second issue that you need to keep in mind is the electrical system. You know what keeps the pump going, which is the electrical system. Um, you have all these notes. You have the SA note, which is the sinoatrial notes. So sino, which is the sinus, which is telling you that's setting the pace uh, of the atrium. So sinoatrial note. This is where you set the pace. It's called the pacemaker. But you notice that sinoatrial notes responsible to contract uh, the atrium, both the atrium, the left and the right atrium. Okay. You can see it comes all the way down here, the left atrium. So it does responsible to contract the left atrium. Then it's sent to the relay station, which is the AV node, atrioventricular node, the node that's between the atrium and the ventricle. Uh, this is a relay station sent down to um, bundle of his, then bundle branch, and then Purkinje fibers. Okay, so these may not seem important to you, but um, when we talk about block blockage, okay, uh, could be coming from these. So let's say if you have some lesion here on this nerve and in the Pekinchi fibers. So basically, if you have a lesion in the Pekinchi fiber, that's mean that particular spot, that very spot where the Pekinchi fiber touch, that spot cannot contract. So that piece of the heart muscle will not be able to contract because of that problem. But let's say you have a right or left bundle branch block, okay? The right bundle branch block, that means your whole entire right side will not contract. If you have a left bundle branch block, that means your left ventricle cannot contract. But if you have uh, the blockage up at the AV bundles, that means both left and right ventricle cannot contract. Uh, if you have, let's say, a sever here by the SA node, that means the whole heart will not contract. So understanding where they're at, you will understand when you have blockage, certain blockage, and what it will cause, uh, those blockage. Okay. You also we also have the coronary uh, vessels as well. Okay, coronary uh, vessel that uh, supply blood to the heart, supply blood to the heart itself. Okay, supply blood to the heart itself. Okay, the right and left coronary artery. Um, the the main one to remember is LAD right here, um, left anterior descending uh, artery, also known as uh, widow maker. This is the location. This is the most common occlusion that occur. And when we do bypasses, usually this little guy here. Okay, LAD. Okay. Uh, the also now is known as AIA, anterior interventricular artery. So they go by different name. LAD is the old name, really. Um, most newer textbook now they use. Uh, anterior interventricular artery, little fancier name. And not just notice would be in some of these circumflexes just mean going around it uh, on the left side. Uh, you also have the posterior descending, which is on the back, uh, right marginal branches on, on the edge. Okay, these are supplying the blood to, to the heart, it's heart muscle itself, which is they do that passively every time the heart actually relaxes. Uh, the last, the last, uh, the very end, which is the uh, isovolumic relaxation, that's the time when the blood actually pulls into your, uh, at the end of the aorta, the ascending aorta, and then the blood actually goes into these coronary artery and supply the, the blood to the heart itself. So it's a very um, genius mechanism uh, that, um, that was designed to provide blood to the heart itself without using any work at all. The, big, the biggest one that you should remember is the coronary sinus. This is where you, it dumps the blood back, back, back um, dumps the blood back into your right atrium. This is circulating the, the alginate blood from the coronary arteries and veins, and then dump it back into the right ventricle so that you could uh, recycle them through.
these are the coronary circuits. You guys could review those. Pretty, uh, very interesting, very easy to follow. Okay. Why is it repeat itself? We talked about SA node, AV node already. Okay, so we'll stop right here, and then before we go on to the next one. Hi, folks. Uh, welcome to part three. And so one first term that you do need to know is called the refractory period. Refractory period. This is uh, where you, your muscle, uh, saying that, you know what, I don't want to work for you right now. I'm just going to chill. Uh, I'm just going to chillaxing for a little bit. I, I'm not going to be able to fire again. This lasts only a few milliseconds, um, but this is where you just, everything cannot be contract. Everything is relaxing. Uh, and this is at the end, so right at the um, isovolumic relaxation period as well. Okay, so the refractory period is that when it happened. So you might want to know that. We talked about all of these, PWA, PR, QRS, uh, ST, and QT. Um, so you should know those. Uh, when it's repole, depole, all of these stuff definitely is something that you should be aware of. Uh, question two, so write this down on the comment uh, below. So a nurse is looking at the ECG, EKG, and is measuring the time interval from the onset of atrial electrical activity to the onset of ventricular electrical activity. What is the nurse measuring? Okay, so write that choice down below on the comment section. Okay, so you guys could look at this. This is pretty much the same video um, regarding the, um, the EKG that I just mentioned. So. So next we're going to get into the cardiac function, um, what it does. So we already covered the depole, repole, uh, refractory period, just did that. Um, the nervous system that actually used this is called the ANS, the autonomic nervous system. This has to do with the para and symp sympathetic and parasympathetics. So sympathetic nerve, we talked about this before. You should know the, the innovation of the heart is also based on cardiac innovation. Okay, this is in, uh, increasing electrical conductivity of the uh, muscle contraction of the heart. Um, when it, uh, we use parasympathetic to slow it down, so sympathetic to excite it. Uh, so technically speaking, if we were to cut, and this the system actually run based on the parasympathetics. So if we were to cut the parasympathetics nerve, okay, your heart rate will be at 100 beats per minute. I'm not sure that's, um, that's just a quiet coincidence that we actually, our heart rate is by itself, not relying on a parasympathetic system by itself, it actually at 100 beat flat. Um, beats per minute. So quite a coincident, a quite an interesting number to be at. Um, so this is shown that this, this is a design, well-designed, our body is actually a well-designed mechanism, a well-designed machine. But because of parasympathetics that we have, uh, that's why we not just at 100 beats a minute, it actually calms your, your heart rate down, down to 80 for most people, 60 to 80 beats per minute for most people. If you're getting older, as you get older, uh, this system does not work as full potential because you have a problem that comes in causing your heart rates to go up. Okay, but uh, also remember this as well. There's an alpha and beta analogic receptor, uh, norepi and epi. Okay, and acetylcholine. Acetylcholine helps with contraction. Uh, the other term that you definitely need to know, you're going to see these term all the time. Uh, the term is called chronotropy and inotropy. Chronotropy is you referring to your heart rate. Chronotropy is heart rate. Inotropy is mean uh, your heart contraction, how hard your heart is actually contracting. Uh, negative chronotropy meaning that you actually you will become. Um, Tacky, oh, no, I'm sorry, um, bradycardia. If positive chronotropy, doesn't mean you become tachycardia. A negative inotropy means that you are just not contracting like in case of heart failures. Uh, positive chronotropy doesn't mean your heart contracting way too fast, uh, just going too much contraction. Okay, going almost like spasm. So knowing these, what caused these, these will be on your on your exam, your your next quiz, and also your, on your final exam. So positive inotropiation, like norepi and epi and dopamine, thyroid hormone, all of these could cause the positive inotropic, whereas negative inotropic, you could have acetylcholine um, kind of bring it down, okay, bring it down a notch. Some terminology that you do need to know, the preload, EDV, and the diastolic volume, and afterload, and, and systolic volume. Okay, so all these terms you do need to know. So the uh, preload, preload is the same thing with end diastolic volume. Okay, um, 
and diastolic volume. So of volume of blood in the ventricle at the end of diastole and diastolic volume, meaning that once is your heart is is filling up, your ventricle is the volume of your ventricle is filling up, uh, is the how much blood you actually have right before your next contraction. Okay, right before your next contraction at the end of your relaxing after your little vacation that the heart has, just relaxing, it's been filled up to the brim. How much blood you have filled up to the brim. So think of the term preload. EDV and diastolic volume is when you fold, completely fold your ventricle, your left ventricle become full. Okay, so preload and diastolic volume, that's when it's become full, okay, ready to contract. Afterload, we're going to talk about afterload just a little bit later. Uh, let's talk about ESV first. ESV is the, uh, the contraction. After your ventricle contract, pump out the blood. How much blood do you have left? How much blood do you have left in your ventricle after you squeeze those blood out? And, uh, the normal volume for ESV oftentimes is about 40, 44, 45%, 45% from the original volume. So if you have, if you started with 100, you would only have 45 left. You only pump out about 55% out. Okay. That's no, that's normal. Actually, that's very, very normal for most folks. Uh, for people who have like congestive heart failure, that number gets to be a lot higher. So it could go up to 60, 65, or even 70 or 80%. You only pump out the blood 20%. Um, so you have ESV goes up as you have your muscle become weaker. Same thing with people who have MI. Uh, when you have MI, your muscle become weaker, your ESV then go up. Afterload. Afterload is the pressure. So afterload, you want to to put this uh, term equate equate to hypertension. This 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 is the pressure that pushing back to the uh, aortic pressure. So this is aortic um, aortic not valve, aortic uh, aorta, the pressure that's inside the aorta, that pushing back onto the aortic semilunar valves. So that's the afterload. So if you have hypertension, your afterload goes up. What does that mean? What does that entail? If your afterload goes up, your heart has to work harder to open that valve, has to push out harder to open that um, aortic semilunar valve. So therefore, if you keep up for a long time, if you keep having a high afterload year after year after year, then your heart could say one day, you know, I'm done with you. Uh, I've been working so hard, pushing these blood out. I'm not going to work anymore. Uh, then you end up with uh, chronic congestive heart failure. Okay. So, um, so EDV, think of EDV is you filling up, you actually at the end, you have this, uh, filled up. So preload is basically, uh, right before you pump out, right? Preload is mean right before you load up, uh, right before you pump out. So EDV is the amount of blood that you have to begin with before you pump. Uh, when you pump, when you have the systole, when you have contraction here, you pump out the blood. So the blood, the, the blood that comes out, this is called what we call the stroke volume. The stroke volume. The pressure, in this case, is the lid, uh, the size of the lid is pushing down, the pressure to push down, that's the afterload. The pressure that's pushing down, prevent the blood to go out, that's the afterload. So systole, contracting, afterload is pushing back uh, to, the vent to, the, to the left ventricle. And then stroke volume is the amount of blood you actually pump out each time, one contraction. And then ESV is the amount of blood that you have left. In, in actuality, this one is a little bit higher, so it should be about at 45%, so it will be a lot higher. Okay? So a few terminology that you do need to know, like stroke volume, is the amount of blood that you pump out each one time on the left ventricle. So just remember, it's one contraction on the left ventricle. We don't care about the right ventricle, ventricle volume on the right. We do care on the left. So it's the left ventricle one time that you pump the blood out, how much blood you actually pump out in one time. Cardiac output is the amount of stroke volume per one minute. So how many times you actually have a heartbeat. So basically, cardiac output is stroke volume times the heart rate in one minute. So how much blood you actually pump out in one minute. And usually that number comes to about five liters of blood. You pump out about five liters of blood. And if you remember from a few weeks ago how much blood you have in your body, well, it turns out you happen to have five liters of blood in your body as well. So therefore, what this means is that uh, in one minute, you actually circulate your whole entire blood in one minute throughout your whole entire body. Okay, it takes one minute from your uh, from the blood that comes into your atrium, goes through the rest of your body, and then come back to that atrium again in one minute, okay, approximately. 
So you have uh, cardiac output, which is stroke volume times heart, times heart rate. Then you have the um, ejection fraction. Ejection fraction, or EF, ejection fraction is percentage uh, percentage of how much blood that you pump out okay, in, um, and how much that you have left. So to calculate the ejection fraction, it's very simple. You use the stroke volume, how much blood you actually pump out. You divide it the blood that you have to start with, okay, which is EDV. That would become the percentage, how much blood that you actually pump out. You're like, wait a minute, this is confusing. Oh my God, it's confusing. Well, it's not too, too bad if you think about it, okay? Uh, let's say this is the water. You, let's pretend that you have 100 water here, okay? The water level is 100. You pump out, let's use different color, okay? You pump out this much water out, okay? This much water out. So this much water, just pretend it's 55. You pump out 55 out, and then you have what's left here on the bottom. What's left is 45, which make up 100. So basically, the, the stroke volume is the amount that you actually pumped out, which is 55, divide by the amount that you start off with, which is 100, okay? And that's become 55%. So that's uh, ejection fraction, ejection fraction, okay? So EDV is, again, is the amount that you begin with, the total blood that you begin before you're contracting. Uh, stroke volume is the amount that you pump out, which is 55, okay? So that's how we get the number. Plain and simple, pretty easy. So you have 100, you spend 55 bucks. So how many, what's the percentage that you spend? Which, which is 55% of your money that you spend. So it's not very complex. A lot of people think EF, uh, ejection fraction, I can't really get it, get this. Plain and simple, folks, is just uh, amount that you pump out that you, that's left to the total amount that you start off with. Just like your test. You, how many, how many questions you got correct? You need, you, you're not going to divide with number of questions you got wrong. You divide it with total number of the question that you have to actually figure out your grade in terms of percentage. Okay. So same thing. Okay. So, um, Frank's starting law, Frank's starting law is uh, saying that your, your muscle has to be, has to have certain pressure, has to have certain volume in order to stretch your, your, uh, to create contraction. So without that volume, you cannot contract. So what does this mean? So it, this is what I alluded to earlier before was that uh, a few weeks ago, if you actually lose two liters of blood, okay, you lose two liters out of the five liters, uh, you will not have enough pressure because of this law. You won't have enough pressure to stretch those muscles in order to cause the heart to contract. So losing two liters of blood, it will stop your heart from contracting tracking because you don't have enough pressure to stretch out those muscles. Okay, so big thing to, re to keep in mind. Um, so Poisson law is also another law is actually referring to the resistance. Uh, the greater the resistance, the lower the blood flow. So pretty straightforward. Just uh, just think of uh, if you have a hose, a water hose, uh, if you have, if you put your thumb on the end of the hose, you actually create that resistance. The more resistance you have, the less water going to flow through uh, through that, that pipe, through, go through that hole. You come out in a smaller hole. It does increase the force. The pressure goes up, but the lower the blood flow, the blood doesn't flow quickly as quickly. Okay, So resistance plays a big role in terms of blood pressure. Velocity, again, is the, uh, the how much, how fast it can travel. The key one that you should know is viscosity, is how thick things are. Uh, the thicker things are, the slower it gets, uh, the greater resistant things will get slower as well. Okay, So high hem hematocrit, uh, people who have polycythemia vera, really high hematocrit, uh, increased viscosity, therefore you reduce the blood flow. Okay. Uh, different hormones. Uh, we talked about some of these hormones already uh, in the uh, and ADH, RAS, uh, natric, uh, natriuric, Uretic peptide ANP and BNP. We already talked about those. Okay, we're going to talk about a few more later on. Uh, so answer these questions on the bottom below as well. Put in your uh, under this comment section. Question three: Person heart is reduced. What is happening physiologically? What is happening if your heart rate is reduced? Okay, what happened physiologically? Uh, cover one last thing for this video is lymphatic system. I'm not going to go into too much detail of lymphatic, but just kind of uh, kind of mention a few things. So lymphatic system is basically is the leftover system. Uh, so when you have the blood exchange in your between your capillaries, you're actually releasing nutrients and then oxygen and then picking up the waste and carbon dioxide. In reality, 
things are not perfect in the, in the real world. Things are not creating perfect. You're not gonna uh, put everything back on on into the blood. Okay, you don't have enough force to put everything back into the blood. So what's left over in in that interstitial space uh, area? So what's gonna happen? It's gonna go into the backup system, which is the lymphatic system. Lymphatic system is the left uh, left uh, backup system where it picks up any leftover of the um, of the component. Uh, to circulate throughout your whole body. Okay, unlike the arteries and veins, uh, lymphatic system does not move by itself. Doesn't doesn't move like arteries. It doesn't cannot pump itself to pump those uh, those system um, those fluid uh, back into the into the circulation into the blood vessels. So it, a lot of time um, they use your muscle to move things around. Uh, if you if you if you haven't tried this, try this. I would highly recommend. Uh, in massage, there's actually a, a lymphatic massage. So they usually focus on your lymph node and all all of your lymphatic system, trying to help move those those lymphs around your whole entire body. Okay, since it's not pumping like a blood system, like a vascular system, a lymph doesn't move it. If you actually don't move your body, you're you're gonna have a stasis in a lot of your lymphatic system. You uh, you're gonna see a lot of more swelling uh, in, into your interstitial spaces. Uh, one neat thing about lymph is it does have uh, valves. It does have little valves as well. Uh, it, it's all also known as a closed-ended system, meaning that it closes on one end at the very end where it's pick up things is closed. Um, unlike the vascular system, it's actually open on both ends. Lymphatic system only open on one end, only allow one-way flow because of the valves. It has valves similarly to to the veins, so it just have one direction kind of system. Okay, so things are moving a lot slower, and they have you could see here they have a little. Uh, Crack, lack of better term, is actually where things could seep in. Uh, you could see it close on one end here, nice and close on one end. Whereas vascular system is all open on both ends, where these lymph uh, close on one end, but things kind of seep in through these cracks into the lymphatic tissue, in, into the lymphatic um, fluids. And this, all of this, going to go to the lymph node and also going to go to back into your thoracic duct, which is uh, your vein, uh, your uh, your left subclavian and right subclavian vein. Okay, before it goes back into your heart. Okay. So this is a gist of the lymphatic system. You have thoracic duct, you have the afferent going into the lymph node, the efferent exiting from the lymph node. Uh, this is also, as you remember, where your uh, T-cells and B-cells live in your lymph node uh, all around your body. Okay. Uh, answer this question. Um, the nurse observed a hotspot from injection radioactive solution. Which test is the nurse reviewing? Okay. Which test are you reviewing? Answer that question below on the comment below. Okay. I think I'll stop uh, right here before we continue further. Hey folks, welcome to part four. Okay, so we're gonna talk about diseases now. We're gonna get into the disease of these uh, these things. So the first one we're definitely gonna talk about is the diseases of the veins. So varicose veins come to mind. You're definitely gonna see tons of these. As we age, what happens is the valves on the vein, remember veins has valves, uh, V and V, veins has valves. Uh, the valves doesn't work quite properly. So a lot of time, it, and these valves actually shuts down. So closes itself down. So or it's actually not closed properly. Uh, so so what's gonna you're gonna see is you're gonna start seeing the pool of the blood vessels, uh, the blood in, into that specific section, and then you, that those sections gonna become bigger and bigger and bigger and kind of just unpleasantly sight. Okay. Um, and this is uh, could be a part of the prostacyclin. Um, and a thromboxane A2, you're gonna change that. When it, when you do that, you could actually have potential clotting. A prostacyclin actually help the inside of your blood vessel become nice and smooth, really nice and smooth. Um, and thromboxane A2 is actually on the opposite end. It actually cause uh, actually it cause vasodilation, um, causing vasodilation and also cause um, some 
clotting as well. Okay, so prostacycline could go down when you have these problems, and thromboxane could go up, and causing you you to actually have more clots uh, in those areas. Okay, um, anytime when you see a, uh, especially if you see this happen uh, with the artery as well, when you actually start having uh, the when the artery or veins become bigger, what what happen is the uh, the the artery, the flow become turbulence. When the flow actually become turbulence, uh, it actually starting to cause what we call a clots. Uh, so you developing the thrombi and emboli, uh, thrombi from there, thrombus from there. So because of these uh, flow that actually cause the blood to kind of circulate and flow around it, um, more likely you will create that clot, that thrombi, thrombus there. Okay. So keep that in mind. Um, spider veins and uh, varicose vein is pretty easily treated. Uh, we all you need to do is inject uh, saline into it, um, and then you will collapse those veins forever. So if it's small enough, you could just uh, injecting saline in it and make sure you actually write in the vein. Once you inject it in, it will collapse those veins. So uh, that unpleasantly sight will actually disappear very quickly. And that's what we do with laser. Same thing. You just actually using laser to collapse those veins together. You're like, whoa, 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 back the truck up, um, collapsing the veins. Oh, my God, that sounds bad. But you think about it. I mean, there's actually a lot of veins in your body. Uh, let's say you, you you close a small street. Let's say you close um, on the 30, you know, 32nd Street. Uh, you still could find using 35th Street to go around um, to get to where, where you need to go. So if you want close one small street, it should be okay. Even you close a big one, let's say you close I-17, you could still take 51 up north. So um, same thing with your vein system. Uh, if you close one down, you still have other system to take you to the place that you need to go. Okay, so no biggie. So the other one would be the chronic venous insufficiency. Chronic venous insufficiency doesn't mean uh, you actually starting to have clots. Uh, it could be clot, or this is, could be PAD, peripheral artery, uh, arterial uh, disease, uh, where you have clots not just in your vein but in your artery as well. So not getting the blood flow down uh, or up from your extremity, lower extremity, uh, due to hypertension. So uh, we recommend treatment by weight loss, um, standing and sitting, moving things around. If you're actually sitting uh, for a long period of time, this is something you should uh, be worried about. Um, and especially if you know today's world, we stay at home. We kind of do, um, you know, we we don't we we do work from home. Uh, WFT, uh, actually FWFH, uh, work from home. Um, so if you work from home, a lot of time that you could actually, if you sit for a long period of time, like a lot of time with programmer coders. Um, they're just sitting in front of a computer for you know 10, 12 hour, 13, 14 hours straight. Um, if you don't move your legs a lot, you could actually creating the blood clots. Even a long flight, international flight, like Pacific flight, that you could fly for 12, 14, 15, or even longest flight is 19 hours. If you just sit in your seat for 19 hours, you could actually develop DVT uh, because you're not moving your legs. Uh, you're not moving those muscles. Remember, your veins uh, doesn't pump by itself. You need the muscle and the gravity to actually help you move those blood back to your heart. So you need to move. Uh, otherwise, you're going to develop a clot. Okay. Uh, you definitely need to remember this, um, the Virchow triad, uh, venous stasis, venous uh, intermal damage, and then hypercoagulable states. So once you actually have these uh, intermal damages uh, inside because of your blood is not moving uh, because you have valves problem, and you could actually lead to uh, clots that you could actually develop thromb uh, thrombus in your leg. And once you develop thrombus, it could lead to embolus or emboli. Okay, so something to keep in mind. You don't want to develop uh, a 
emboli because that could lead to PE, pulmonary emboli. We will talk about that when we talk about the lungs. Okay. Um, test you could test the D-dimer because that's going to show the the clots um, that how much things actually being clots in your body. Doppler ultrasound to see where the clot is. You could break up the clots or actually remove it. Uh, treatment usually we ask you to move using heparin, but mainly trying to move your body. That would be the best best way. Okay. Uh, last one for veins is superior vena cava syndrome. Superior vena cava syndrome. This is the progressive occlusion of the SVC that leads to venous distension. So if there's a clot up in SVC, which it should be huge, um, you would see this, um, uh, you would see uh, the jugular vein distension pretty easily. Okay. Um, so you have edema, you have cyanosis, you have respiratory distress. So let's look at uh, cardiovascular disease. This is the most common one that you're probably going to see a lot of time is atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis. This means uh, you're actually developing the plaque, uh, developing a plaque around your artery. Okay, developing a plaque around your artery. The key word to remember on this one, really, truly, and people usually don't pay, don't pay attention to as much when you talk about these keywords, is inflammation. Inflammation. You're going to see inflammation with. Um, Atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis, you're going to see huge inflammation. And we're going to talk, we're going to touch into that inflammation later on. Causes, you could have infection, but not likely. Um, the main causes for these, we'll talk about that shortly. Okay. Um, most of the time it's asymptomatic, but if you let, let, leave it untreated, uh, you could lead to a whole bunch of other things like hypertension, thrombi, embolus, emboli, TIA, stroke, all kinds of things. And one thing that you should test for your patient, okay, you should test this for your patient, really, is C-reactive protein, okay? Circle this. Uh, you need to test this with your patient. Uh, people don't test it, especially with hypertension, especially with people who have CAD, you need to test C-reactive protein. People who have high cholesterol test C-reactive protein. Some people actually, honestly, have a high cholesterol Okay, if you have high cholesterol, however, if your C-reactive protein is normal, if your CRP is normal, what do I mean by normal? If it's below two, around two or three, or below two or three, that's normal. Okay, then you shouldn't be worried. You shouldn't be concerned whatsoever. No worry, no cigar. If if you 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 have a high cholesterol, but your C-reactive protein is high, five, six, seven, okay, nine, ten. That's bad. That's mean, uh, your cholesterol is actually gonna be a big, huge problem in your blood. Because your blood at the time is, you're not gonna have a nice and smooth wall inside your, your blood vessel. You're gonna have an inflamed, uh, wall of your blood vessel causing you to develop a plaque. Causing you to develop blockages. Okay, so this is a key to test. A lot of cardiologists now focusing on this CRP corresponding to uh, your cholesterol. Do not, I said, do not. When you see the high cholesterol, jump to the gun and saying, "Okay, let's let's just put you on statin drugs." Woohoo! Technically speaking, according to the FDA, uh, statin drug is only be given, only been given if you recommend to your patient to exercise for six months and nothing changed in the six month period of time. Then you could put the patient on statin drugs. Ever since I started practicing, I have not seen or heard any doctors um, do that. Recommend your patient to go ahead and exercise, and I'll put you on stratin later on. Have not yet seen that, okay? But I would highly recommend for all of you to do that first. Look at their C-reactive protein, okay? 
if you could change their C-reactive protein, if you could change their diet, then you may not need to put them on statin drugs. So keep that in mind. Okay. So statin drugs uh, may, you know, may cause more harm than good. So you want to try all the stuff first before you put people on statin. So um, the main thing is look at for C-reactive protein, and this is one of the key things that we usually don't talk about. And this is something you should know for your exam because we do ask this on your exam, uh, your midterm, and your, uh, your next quiz and your final exam. So atherosclerosis, this is what happened in your atherosclerosis. The first thing is you have this endothelium cells that actually have tons and tons of nitric oxide. Okay, Your endothelial cells have tons of nitric oxide. Uh, normally, it's NO, which is nitric oxide. Uh, you have tons of NO inside your arteries, making your artery nice and smooth and shiny. Okay, Inside your artery, it's nice and smooth and shiny. But as you get older, these... Uh, these endothelial cells become damaged. Okay, become damaged. Once it become damaged, this these guys become very very sticky. When it become damaged, it becomes sticky. When it becomes sticky, things that floating in there, just like cholesterol, start to build up and start to build on these on this wall, causing uh, the blockage of these arteries. Okay. So you have this inflammation of the endothelial, the cytokine kicks in, uh, trying to fix it because it's an injury. And then you have the cellular proliferation, uh, the LDL. Usually, we always blame the LDL, the bad cholesterol. But technically, this guys, there's neither good nor bad. Uh, LDL, you find abundancy of LDL in your blood. You're going to find a higher amount of HDL in your lymph. Okay, and you're gonna find lower LDL in your lymph node. So this is where they travel. Most LDL travel in your blood. That's why you see a high level. HDL do not travel in your blood, so that's why we find very little of them in your blood. Majority of them travel in your lymph node. HDL is the opposite. Okay, and um, LDL technically, uh, just think of them as a busboy. They're just cleaning up stuff for you. Okay, they're just cleaning, bringing the trash from your cell to the liver. Whereas HDL bringing the good from your cells, uh, from the liver to your cells. So they are the server. So HDL the server, the LDL is, is the busboy. So we do need both of them. We do need both of them. So doesn't mean if they are bad. They're just a protein. They're just lipid protein. Uh, they're just fat. Nothing bad about them. People always saying LDL is bad. No, not really. The corporate is not the LDL. The corporate is this endothelial injury. What caused the endothelial injury, you might say? Well, the endothelial injury is actually caused by one and only thing that you should know of is animal fat. Yes, animal fat. Um, if you ask a lot of cardiologists, now today they will tell you one and only thing that caused this is animal fat. So the more animal fat you eat, the more endothelial damage you will do to these uh, nitric oxide, and you're going to cause the injury into your endothelial walls. The more damage you have, the more likely, the more likely you're going to have uh, atherosclerosis. Okay, try this. You could try this yourself. Okay, if you want to lower your LDL, stop eating animal fat for a week. Your LDL will drop like no tomorrow. Your LDL, your HDL actually respond very quickly, and even your to total cholesterol respond very quickly to the food that you eat. The higher uh, cholesterol food, the higher animal cholesterol you eat, the higher the cholesterol in your body going to go up right away. Okay, Literally, and it changed within days. Uh, you don't have to wait weeks or months to see this. Uh, if you actually just stop eating 
you know, animal fat for a week before you go in, maybe three or four days before you go, you go and test your blood and you will see your cholesterol just drop, uh, like no tomorrow. Vice versa, if you're actually doing a keto diet, just eating crazy like animal fat uh, and stop eating carb, you're going to see your cholesterol go through the roof. One thing that uh, carb does is actually absorb cholesterol or absorb fat in your gut. So, and if you don't eat carbs, uh, you don't eat fiber, not carb specifically, but fiber specifically. If you don't eat fiber, it does not absorb the, um, the fat. So your cholesterol does not absorb cholesterol, so therefore your cholesterol shoots up through the roof. That's why a lot of cardiologists will not see a patient who actually doing keto diet, um, because their cholesterol is way through, through the roof, and no matter what you give them, statin will not help. So, um, you could watch this video. Uh, there's tons of video that actually relate to uh, to the animal fat. Um, if you want me to talk more about that, let me know. Would love to talk to you guys more about this. So, um, but you know, asking your patient uh, to go vegetarian or eat less meat uh, could help save their life. If they have a hypertension, if they have high cholesterol, if they have already have a bypass, this is something they should consider. You know, uh, much better alternative than just taking those medication. Much better, better alternative than just going uh, on the chopping block and try to do another uh, open heart surgery for, for another bypass. Okay, simple things to do, very simple, um, but very effective, will long lasting as long as you stop eating the animal fat or reduce that animal fat. You will eventually will have a better inside of your heart. This is not just a naturopathic or um, you know, holistic type of medicine. This is what the cardiologists actually believe. This is coming out from the American Cardiology Society. Um, they do believe that is because of these endothelial injury causing by the animal fat, causing breaking down these endothelial injury, uh, causing uh, the heart uh, to the damage inside the vessel. Um, and this is goes along the way. Trust me, this is also go along with the way with uh, COVID nineteen as well, because COVID nineteen is known to attack these endothelial tissue as well, causing the similar damage inside your endo endothelial walls. So if you want to have a nice pristine endothelial walls, uh, less eat less animal fat if you can. Okay, so something to keep in mind. Again, this is the, the picture of the cholesterol. I just want to kind of debunk that there's a good or bad cholesterol. There's no good nor bad cholesterol. Cholesterol is cholesterol. You start with something called chiromicron. This is from your intestine, picking up all the lipids in your in your intestine. And as you as it shrinks down, um, it see is that good or bad? As it shrinks down, you have less of it. It's it's the same guy, just less uh, lipids inside them, lipoprotein. You have these less less lipids, so you have low density. Uh, very low density, low density, and then high density lipoprotein. Okay, so um, no good nor bad. Trust me, um, lipids is lipids. You do need both of them. Without cholesterol, you can your cell cannot function. You need it in the uh, the cell wall of of your of your cell, all of your cell cell membrane or cell wall. So uh, inside your blood vessels, you have these uh, lipids kind of on the bottom, but you have these damage um, causing. The nitric oxide to be damaged. Once it's damaged, you have all these cytokine respond um, coming on and attacking, causing, and then using the lipids to come in and fix the problem and then fill with the lipids, kind of pull in here, causing the blockage of the blood. Another note uh, in terms of the blockage, um, you do have um, the blockage itself uh, have different grade. Um, usually, the um, the higher 
the really high grade um, tend to be more stable. So if you have like 95% block, usually is better than uh, 60 or 70% block because 60 or 70% can cause a whole bunch of the problem or even become uh, erupt and cause more injury and more complication. But at 90, 90 or above tends to be kind of fixed. Um, but usually by then you would need a bypass either way. Okay. So next big topic that we want to talk about is hypertension. Hypertension is anytime when your blood pressure is high, above 140 over 90, and we're going to go into a little bit more on that. Um, the uh, hypertension, you definitely need to use JNC8. Uh, JNC8, this is a clinical guideline for um, uh, hypertension management. A little bit of background in terms of hypertension. I'm going to include this PDF file for you guys uh, in the link uh, in the announcement, so look for that. It's pretty good to keep for your practice. Okay. Uh, before, before we used to have these stages. We have the normal, the prehypertensive, um, and then you know it's still kind of prehypertensive, and then you have stage one and stage two. Uh, that's way back then. Since 2007, things actually classified differently, differently. So uh, I want you to notice uh, mainly the di diastolic. This is one of uh, the things that you probably want, might want to look at. is diastolic. The systolic kind of goes up and down when you get excited. Uh, you know, your systolic goes up when you um, when you get um, scared. Your systolic goes up when you take your exam. Your systolic goes up. So diastolic kind of stable for the most part. So if your diastolic in between uh, greater than 80, you're going to have elevated blood pressure regardless. 80 to 89 is stage one. 90 or above is stage two hypertension. Okay, we don't want people to be above 90. Before, you have to go over 100 to consider it stage 2. Now, you just consider 90 or above stage 2 hypertension. Okay, So keep that in mind. We actually have a different, different classification of uh, hypertension. So there's um, primary and secondary hypertension. So primary is most people have primary hypertension. Uh, this is a kind of straightforward case. So if you have someone who actually older in age, um, usually not caused by any other secondary thing, like let's say they have they don't have a kidney disease or any other thing that would might uh, you know pituitary tumor or you know pheochromocytoma, any of those things that would be a primary or essential hypertension. Okay, we don't really know what caused it, but you, we know that your blood pressure goes up, and it could be because of your diet, because of your smoking, age-related. Uh, as you get older, your blood pressure goes up, and this has to do with the RAS system, the overactivity of the RAS system, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Usually, this is why you know the first drug of choice usually is the ARP or uh, diuretics or um, uh, ACE inhibitor to actually help lower the blood pressure. Uh, blood pressure, yes. Okay, um, so. This is the treatment that we that we often do. Normal blood pressure, nothing to do. Elevated blood pressure, okay. Then you want to use the non-pharmaceutical therapy, reassess in three to six months. Changing diet, exercise, all kinds of things. Once you hit stage two, then you're just going to talk about meds and also hopefully do non-pharmaceutical therapy as well and reassess every single month, okay. Uh, what's different is uh, you have stage one, okay. Uh, stage one is the, the between child, stepchild. So if you have stage one, you have to look at uh, look at the risk of cardiovascular disease. If there's a risk of cardiovascular disease, then you would treat it as the same as stage two. If you, there's no risk of cardiovascular disease, then that you would treat it as elevated blood pressure. Okay, just uh, offer the non-pharmaceutical therapy and then come back in three to six months to reevaluate again. 
Okay, so this is a huge thing to keep in mind. Uh, huge uh, when you practice, this is what you're going to go by, uh, and depending on. In depending on the population, depending on if you have a diabetes or chronic kidney disease, then we recommend certain medication on top of that. Uh, the, the the diagram that I gave you, that I will give you this one as well, uh, will kind of tell you step by step. Uh, let me show you really quick, hopefully. Yep. So we'll tell you step by, by step. This is like um, a very easy guide. Yes or no. Pretty much you just go on here, yes or no. If it's yes, you go into a certain thing. If it's no, go on to a certain thing, and then it will tell you what specific medication or drug to use at what dose as well. Okay, so pretty easy guide to follow hypertension. Um, there's other guidelines as well, other guidelines like uh, AHA uh, as, uh, to follow in terms of, uh, and this is the calculation for the cardiovascular risk. Uh, if you actually add the uh, ASCVD, uh, if, you, if you add the uh, elevated um, or stage one in the old ways, in the old, uh, in the old uh, classification. Actually, no, not the new classification. The stage one classification. Anytime you have elevation, uh, but between 80 to 89, this is what you're going to do. You're going to come in and then just type in their age, their sex, their race, uh, systolic, diastolic, total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, and whether they have diabetes, smokers, uh, hypertension in the past, any st on statin or not, aspirin therapy, and then we'll give you a score whether you uh, that person is. Uh, low risk or high risk, uh, going back here, whether it's actually above 10%. If they are above 10%, then therefore you will treat as stage 2. If they're below the 10% risk, then you'll treat as uh, elevated 1. Okay. Uh, secondary hypertension, This is uh, you want to think about these when you have younger patient coming in. Okay, younger, younger patient coming into your office, let's say in their, in their 20s or 30s, and they have a hypertension. More likely, they're going to have secondary type of hypertension, not the primary. Also, uh, any drugs, certain drugs could actually cause this as well. So you want to be careful of that. And also, a special condition, like let's say you have, let's say a patient who have one kidney, um, they lost a kidney and they only have one kidney was donated by his brother. Then you might want to think, okay, that could be a cause of the hypertension as well as a secondary cause. So all of these things you have to actually put in your head. Uh, think about uh, about whether it's a primary or secondary. So any anytime you're seeing uh, a younger age, always a red flag for for the uh, secondary. So hypertension, uh, you have a complication that could lead to the uh, fibrosis in the tunica intima and media. This is the inside of your blood vessel and the middle layer of your blood vessels. So by you know these damaging and then re, uh, rebuilding again, so causing a harden, harden of your blood vessels as well. You could have malignant hypertension. This is rapid. It just keep going up very quickly. Uh, your diagnostic, your diagno um, the diastolic goes up above 140, which is really high. Okay, normally it's 80. So hypertension, cost, and risk factor, you have several things from gender, um, age uh, play a big role, race play a huge role. This is what caused COVID-19 because uh, because of this in, uh, endothelial layers and a high risk of hypertension that actually caused diabetes as well, um, that actually caused the mortality rate of the um, COVID-19. Okay. Uh, a lot of times, hypertension is asymptomatic. People don't know they have them until they measure their blood pressure. They could have a headache, blur vision, uh, nosebleed, usually a good one. Uh, POTS, something to remember uh, also, because we start seeing more of this for some real reason here in Arizona and in the U.S. Uh, for the last for the last 10 years or so, POTS. Um, postural autostatic uh, tachycardia syndrome 
or autostatic hypotension as well. It does come hand in hand with tachycardia and hypotension. This is where you uh, become uh, lightheaded when you get up and down, sitting, standing, lying down. So um, you become fainting upon standing. So we see a lot of these for some reason. We don't really know what the cause of it is. We see in uh, even in the young young folks in their 20s and 30s developing POTS and uh, autostatic hypotension. So something to keep in mind and something to be aware about uh, when you seeing those patients okay uh, i want you to answer this on the comment below hypertension question question one individual has primary hypertension and recurrent strokes which drug should the nurse prepare to administer okay put that on the bottom below for next one we're going to talk about coronary artery disease coronary artery disease again this is kind of going along the same line that we talked about earlier uh, with atherosclerosis uh, this is where you have to clot uh, usually is uh, cholesterol can be genetics but with CAD usually it's because environmental what you actually eat um, you could the more uh, the, the worst food that you eat could actually damage the inside of your endo endothelial lining, causing you to end up with um, inflammation in your coronary arteries, uh, um, vessels, and then from there you start having buildup of the plaque inside. Again, um, the risk factor could be you know from smoking to anything that causes endothelial, endothelial injuries, uh, including uh, food. A big huge thing is food so you are what you eat so if you eat crappy food you're gonna be uh, you your artery won't like you as much you will feel crappy as well okay and diabetes uh, obesity can actually help you with that you know um, atherogenic uh, diet uh, really helps with this if you, you look at those so less um, less animal fat in terms of cholesterol they're promoting a lot of omega oil and uh, EPA so to help make your coating inside your artery nice and shiny again you want to look at the the, the marker the c-reactive protein the huge marker that you probably want to look at is troponin i uh, or troponin uh, i that's the, the marker that you want to look at um hyper hyper homocysteinemia that you may see that as well um any type of uh, pollution could actually make it worse. Again, you have these uh, triglyceride, uh, total cholesterol, LDL, uh, HDL, all these. You could uh, you could look at them uh, to make sure that they are in a good condition. The next one is called angina pectoris. Angina pectoris, fancy name, but basically means chest pain. Okay, there's the key that you need to look at is there are different types of angina pectoris. Uh, causes you could actually get it from. CAD, which lead to atherosclerosis, or vice versa. Usually, atherosclerosis lead to CAD uh, caused by smoking. Um, usually, these could lead to angina pectoris. Okay, if you all do all of these things. Um, so there are stable, unstable, mental and silent ischemia. So we'll look at each one. So stable, basically, if you this most common one, MC, most common. That's when you have chest pain while you at rest. But no, I'm sorry, you have chest pain while you exercise. But when you when you rest, uh, when you take medication, you tend to feel better. Okay, when you exercise or you do, you know, climbing up the stair, then you feel uh, pain. You feel uh, chest pain. Once you sit down, rest, you feel better. That's called stable angina. Unstable. Um, you could have chest pain with or without exertion, meaning that you could be resting and you could uh, have chest pain even while you're asleep or when you're at, re you, when you're at rest. Uh, and it's not relieved by just resting, laying, lying down, and uh, that doesn't usually go away by you just lying down. 
this is a bad sign if you have unstable, meaning that you're on your way, you were on your way for that bypass. Okay, so that means that something is occluding. You probably could get MI later on, so something to be really, uh, really pay attention to when you have uh, unstable angina. Okay, so stable, unstable, we talked about. So stable for ease, uh, exercise emotion, cold, and eating. Okay, uh, exercise emotion. Call ooh, maybe that's another E, I guess, and eating, um, and that, that's basically stable in China. Again, it goes away after you rest. Um, you take nitro nitroglycerin, does go away. Unstable, you you could be sleeping, lying down, you have it, and when you rest, it doesn't go away. Okay, the other one is called variant angina or prince metal angina. Uh, usually occur at rest, occur at rest, just like unstable, but it goes away when you take medication. Uh, when you take medication, it does go away. Okay, uh, calcium channel blocker uh, works wonderfully with this. Uh, so variant angina does mean usually. Uh, it's a combination of the two, combination of stable and unstable. Uh, like stable, it could be treated with medication. Unlike stable, which is similar to unstable, is it happened when it when you're at rest, when you're lying around and you're not doing anything, you actually have this come up, chest pain. Okay, so symptom usually chest pain. You feel like squeezing. Uh, most of the times they have people saying some someone is sitting on top of the chest. The elephant sitting on top of the chest may um, have similar feeling to that. Diaphoresis, start sweating, dizziness. Um, you may have murmurs or brutes as well. Okay, you could test with uh, EKG. You could test with uh, echo to see any occlusion. Um, you could do uh, stress tests as well to see angina pectoris. Okay. Um, See, test EKG stress test again. Angiogram works beautifully to see that. Uh, CBC. You also want to look at cholesterol level. You want to look at CRP again. That CRP will go up if you have these kind of problem. Uh, showing inflammation could possibly lead to a heart attack. Okay. Uh, we will talk about the uh, the EKG regarding MI and going to show some of these things here as well. Okay. Um, so we'll stop here uh, and then I'll start the next video with MI. MI is a huge topic, so let's talk in more detail on that. Welcome, folks, to the next video. This is the big topic you were definitely going to see, and a lot of you already know about this. So, uh, MI, myocardial infarction, so aka heart attack. Okay, so uh, MI, there's actually two types of MI that you need to be aware of. There is something called subendocardial MI, and there's a transmural MI. So transmural usually means that you actually have two or more layers. It's actually being damaged. So you actually have uh, the subendocardial, which is endothelium, and the myocardium, actually both of them uh, being damaged. Okay, or more, it could actually go all the way to epicardium as well. Whereas subendocardial, meaning that uh, only uh, the myocardium, part of myocardium uh, is uh, damaged. Okay, part of that myocardium is damaged. So transmural uh, usually means that it's um, myocardium and more. It could be epicardium as well. Okay, usually cover more areas. You can see on the bottom here, with transmural seem to actually have a more damaged, but also depends. Um, you're gonna see in the picture shortly. Okay, so transmural or subendocardial. You look at these uh, this picture here. Even though you can see it doesn't cover a lot of area, but it actually uh, cover the the majority of the myocardium right here. This is called a transmural. Whereas this one, it seems a lot worse. Well, it's 
they're both death anyway with these two folks. They, they have the same consequence at the end, that they both die, hence the picture. Um, but you could see, even though it's darker, but it only affects the this, uh, the closest tissue to the endothelial cell, uh, the endocardium uh, part of your heart, inside part of your heart. This is the muscle just around it. Whereas this, you could see kind of going even to the next ventricle right here, uh, spreading almost all the way to the uh, epicardium on up, up here on the, on the top, and also on the bottom here as well. Of you seeing the picture a little bit better down here, so it does have a wider spread uh, of these uh, infect, uh, infected area, so affected area. Not infected, infected area. So, so symptom of MI you have dyspnea, sudden chest pain, uh, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, and diaphoresis. Uh, and there's a differences in terms of symptoms between men and women. Women tend to have like jaw pain, back pain, and nausea, vomiting. Whereas men, you often have the arm pain, shoulder pain, and also uh, shortness of breath. So, uh, pain locations and symptoms are uh, vastly different from between men and women. Uh, this is something you should know, uh, definitely. Uh, there's something called STEMI when we look at the uh, EKG. The STEMI, you're going to see an elevation of ST. This is what STEMI stands for, ST elevation myocardial infarction. So ST's elevation MI. This is referred to transmural. So you, you, if you have transmural, which is the worst one, uh, you're going to see this like little r. Um, R, letter R here from the EKG, that's the elevation of ST causing, uh, this is, mean it's transmural. Uh, whereas you're seeing non-STEMI, non which is no ST elevation. In fact, you're going to see a ST depression. You're going to see the, um, depressing, uh, the ST segment right here going way down where it's supposed to be, which is up here. So that's going to show the non-STEMI. Okay, which means you have subendocardial MI. So which one is this? Uh, type down in the comment below. Uh, huge peak right here. You could see a nice little R here. So what is this one? Okay, should be able to tell right away. So also type this down in your comment down below. MI. Initially, when you have your BP, uh, your blood pressure, initially, what's going to happen to your blood pressure? Initially, your blood pressure is actually going down, it's decreasing. Your blood pressure decrease when you, when you start having your heart attack. Uh, and then you're going to have this uh, sympathetic nervous system kicks in. Uh, you're going to have an increased heart rate and blood pressure uh, right, right when you start having MI. And then you're going to hear a... Uh, left ventricle dysfunction. You're going to have, have a extra hard sound is because of your left ventricle is not working the way it's supposed to, and which leads to the last one. You could get the pulmonary congestion. You're going to feel with dull percussion by percussing the back part of the back. And also, this is you're going to hear crackles, uh, little crackles in the in the lungs as well, knowing that there's a uh, congestion going on there. Okay. So test, definitely you're gonna look at the troponin I. This is the more, uh, gold standard test. Uh, I will increase, uh, will include the, um, the document that actually show that, um, that is, uh, very specific and also valid as well. Very, um, high validity and high efficacy. Okay. Very specific 90% effectiveness to show that you have heart attack. But, uh, this is between three hours to two weeks. Uh, so if you heart attack uh, within the first two hours, this, uh, it may not rise enough. It may not be high, as high enough. So uh, we could check, uh, you know, your troponin eye after two hours, uh, after heart attack. That will go up. Okay. Other one that you could look at is LDH, like, Lactate dehydrogenase, uh, 24 to 14 days, 24 hours to 14 days. Uh, so usually coming later on, like after a day, peak at three to four days. 
CKMB. Uh, CKMB is not Pacific. Uh, it's actually look at your muscle uh, very close, just like troponin I as well, but last uh, only two days. Okay, only last two days. Whereas troponin I last two weeks. You're gonna see that level elevate for two weeks. This one is say if you have uh, rhabdo, you you know you walk out in the sun doing weird things in the sun during the summer. Your CKMB could be high. Not, doesn't mean that you have heart attack. Not necessary. Okay, so it's not very Pacific. Um, in the in terms of focusing on the heart alone, um, myoglobin same thing is not specific to the cardiac muscle. Does last for about 24 hours after your heart attack goes up. Okay, but so the the main one that we look at is troponin I. Troponin T is uh, not specific to the heart. It's actually specific to other um, other muscles, um, but um, it can be effective as well. So you know you could run together to see both. But uh, the main one we recommend is the I. Uh, MI treatment, you could look at the angioplasty to see the occlusion where the blockage might be. Uh, you could do thrombolytic therapy, breaking those up. Um, you could use beta blocker, ACE inhibitors uh, for that as well. Okay. So uh, some of these things, you will learn these in your farm. So, um, But generally speaking, um, so let's see. Calcium channel blocker. Blocker has to do with contractility. So calcium is your, you use calcium for your muscle contraction. So it will help with contractility. Beta blockers tend to focusing on the rate of the heart, whereas ACE inhibitor tends to look at the the blood pressure. Okay, so you're gonna learn all of these in your in your farm class. Some of you already know it. So thiazide, HCTC. Uh, diuretics, uh, ACE, and, and with Proils, uh, ARPS, and with Sartan, uh, beta blocker, and with all, and uh, calcium channel blocker, when in pine. So answer this question. If a patient had an MI and was prescribed um, calcium antagonist as a part of his future prevention plan, why would uh, calcium antagonist have a positive effect on the patient's health? So when you look at these terms, you look at this term, like you need to know what these terms is, and I mentioned some of these terms to you before, like the word inotropic, chronotropic, if you remember what those means. So inotropic, to remember, is how hard is contract, uh, contraction of your myocardium, whereas inotropic, uh, that's, I'm sorry, that's inotropic is contraction of your myocardium. Chronotropic is uh, the heart rate, how fast it's actually firing. Okay. So A, B, or C, the answer is... B, okay, B is decrease in inotropic effects. So uh, calcium channel blocker has to do with, again, the contraction of the heart. So you need to know what inotropic means. A, what is A referring to? Uh, a is decrease in blood pressure uh, due to decrease in aldosterone in the body. This sounds a lot like ACE inhibitor, okay? So A is usually referring to the ACE inhibitor. Uh, C is decreased chronotrophy. Chronotrophy is the rate of the heart, heart rate. So that's more of the beta blocker. So beta blocker has to do with the rate, whereas ACE has to do with the blood pressure, okay? Uh, answer these below, uh, answer these in the comment below. Um, you guys could take a pause this video to look at this question and then answer below in the comment section. Okay, uh, myocardial infarction or MI, uh, you have you could have progressive ischemia. Um, you're gonna have damage, per permanent damage of these myocardium in the heart, um, causing you know everything to become weak, weaker. Um, let's see, uh, prolonged ischemia, you could actually could cause a lot of damage, uh, irreversible damage to the heart. The heart will actually start doing a couple of things. One is what we call myocardial st stunning. 
okay myocardial stunning that it can't really contract the way it's supposed to properly um so it takes a little time to kind of heal itself um so hibernating myocardium that's when the tissue become um, trying to adapt to the prolonged change of the damaged heart so you have these uh, part of the heart damage and your muscle trying to figure out how to cope with this damage what can we do to uh, to kind of still keep keep your heart beating going and then at least the last one would be the remodeling that's what would occur in your heart whereas certain muscle will kind of remodel remember muscle can can really gain more muscle um, too many more muscles so it's uh, start to remodel itself uh, after an MI okay lead to the repair so myocardial infarction, you have also angiotensin II effects um, leading to vasoconstriction, fluid retention. Uh, this is why it's important to you know use ACE inhibitor right afterward as well to help uh, lower this effect. So you could decrease the blood pressure and get rid of some of the water inside the uh, inside the body. Okay. Uh, local effects uh, may cause the growth factor to uh, for the vascular smooth muscle um, due to the uh, kind of promoting the catecholamine release, uh, causing your see uh, the coronary artery to actually get spasm. Two type we talk about subendocardial and transmurals, uh, ST elevation and non-ST elevation. We talk about both of those uh, testing we talked about as well. So if you want to review again. Uh, Please watch this video, but pretty much this is a show of what happened in the MI. Okay, uh, answer this question below. Uh, Peter Pan came in and reported his thinking. Uh, he reported he thinks he had an MI. Lab results indicate elevation, elevated intraponent I and LDH. However, CKMB and myoglobin are within normal limit. How long ago was his MI? So if you could comment down below. Okay, with the arrhythmia, arrhythmia by itself is actually huge. I mean, I could we could have a workshop all day talking about arrhythmia. Um, so, and it's not doesn't do it justice uh, to cover in just short period of time. So I would recommend uh, you know you guys watch the video and then do your own study on arrhythmia. Um, there's it's a huge topic. It has to do with murmur, uh, flutter, tacky, V-fib, V-tac. All of those are arrhythmia. So. Um, it's you know we don't have enough time to cover that if i do then it will be uh, this video will be way way too long so i would highly recommend watching the videos here to to uh, to kind of touch base on arrhythmia or watch more videos on youtube just kind of remind yourself of what arrhythmia is okay and i'll see you on next video Okay, folks, welcome to the next video. Let's talk about cardiomyopathy. Um, unlike all the stuff we've been talking about in terms of diseases, uh, cardiomyopathy has really nothing to do with, uh, you know, your bad habits of what you eat or you know, things like that. Cardiomyopathy, for the most part, for the most part, has to do with the genetics. It actually run in the family or some type of uh, defects that you might have, like valvular defects or things that you might have since birth, even. Okay, so just keep that in mind. So when we talk about cardio, uh, cardiomyopathy, it's nothing like, you know, you have plaque developing in your heart because you eat bad food or tons of cholesterol. None of that. Uh, this is more of a genetic type of condition for the most part. Um, there's uh, certain things that you will know. There are three types uh, of cardiomyopathy. There's DCM, dilated cardiomyopathy, uh, HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and restrictive RCM, uh, restrictive cardiomyopathy. And we'll talk about all three of them. And to test all of them, technically all of these will not show. The only thing that you will see is this. So circle this. This is uh, echocardiogram. So this is the only thing, gold standard, that you could actually diagnose cardiomyopathy. Um, 
you definitely need to, to, to look at Echo. Uh, CKMB, usually only when they hard already give out, then you could actually see CKMB. Uh, usually they are asymptomatic at first, so you don't even know they actually is there. So these will not show anything at all. Okay, uh, C, um, CPR, uh, CRP will not show whether there's actually inflammation going on. So none of those tests will confirm or show that they have cardiomyopathy. The only way you will see it, the only way you know they have it is echo, echocardiogram. Okay, so cardiomyopathy, you have again three, three of them. Uh, we're going to focus the the main things on these. Okay, something you should notice is a good chart to actually uh, summarize for all three of them. A good chart, and we'll we'll come we'll come back to these uh, as I explain what they are, pathophys of what they are, and I'll come back to these a little bit later on. Okay, but to memorize them, to know what they are, you should know them because you're going to see on your on your quiz and your mid on your on your final. So you should know. Um, just kind of just use this slide. You will have all, all, all the information that you need for each one of them. Okay. So first one we're going to talk about is DCM, dilated cardiomyopathy. Usually again, it's genetics. It runs it wild and crazy in the family. And the only way you're going to see it is through echo. So what happened with DCM is you could see here, um, the wall of the uh, ventricle become very stretched and very thin. Okay. Stretch and thin. Okay, so in order for the heart to pump, uh, because of such a thin wall, the heart doesn't have a lot of contractility, cannot increase the contractility because the muscle fiber being stretched, the myosin and actin being stretched out. Once it's being stretched out, it can only contract the way they want to. So if you could imagine if you have a thin wall, if you cannot contract as the way you want to, therefore, uh, what you want to do is keeping the same ratio. Okay, it's keeping the same ratio. Uh, so the heart actually take on more blood, uh, and it become nice and round on all four chambers. First, it actually will start just the ventricle, uh, all the both ventricles. These ventricles will actually become bigger, and eventually, it atrium will become bigger as well, become compensated. So what happened here is the heart has to take on more blood um, to actually increase the force. To since it's, the wall is so thin, so thin, doesn't have that force to push out the blood uh, through the aorta and the pulmonary artery. So that they don't have that much force. So they, in order to compensate that, to increase the pressure inside the ventricle, uh, is to take on more blood so they could increase the more, uh, increase the more pressure so that the blood could actually still push, being pushed out against the uh, aortic pressure that pushing back in the the um, the afterload. So to, to to overcome that afterload, you have to pack on more blood to increase the pressure to push out the blood. So in return, what you're going to see is all four chambers become dilated. That's the symptoms. It, they're pretty much the heart looks a lot like a soccer ball, literally. So it'll be not be, be big and round, just like soccer ball. So normally this is the uh, Frank Starling curve. Uh, normally this is the normal acted myosin, how it's supposed to look, right, right up here. So normal contraction occurs. Things kind of go back and forth from here, left and right here. But with DCM. This is what happened. Uh, the muscle fiber becomes stretched out like this. So the actin and the myosin have a harder time pulling each other back because it's being stretched out so far apart. So they can't really pull each other back as much. So they don't, they lose that contractility, that, uh, inotropy. So that contractility of the heart kind of goes down as well. Okay. So you could see the DCM is nice and round. See that? Really look like a soccer ball. Next one. Um, so these folks, uh, DCM could actually, could be asymptomatic and they could drop that as well uh, when as an adult if you don't check them early on a lot of times um, we found that by surprise by accident 
usually. Same thing with this one. This is called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Again, you usually get this by genetics. Uh, you have to have someone in the family passing on the gene. Most of the time, it's sudden death. And this is when you hear people, athlete, drop dead on the on the court, on the football field, on the basketball uh, court, or you know, uh, sport that they play, what whichever sport that might be in the track, because they don't know they have them before. And then all of a sudden, once you know their heart give out, uh, they have a heart attack and then die. Okay. So what happened with this one is uh, the wall of the ventricle become opposite, become thicker. So SDCM, the wall become thinner, things become stretched out. This one, uh, the wall become thicker like this, like so. Okay. The wall become thicker, and especially, especially, I want you to focus on the septum, the interventricular septum, this area here. So this area become thicker. The problem with this is when this become thicker, is the blood, this kind of block the pathway of the blood to go out. It, the blood have a harder time being pushed out from the left ventricle. Okay, so it's being pushed out to the left ventricle. So as it having harder time. Guess what the heart would do? They have, the heart would actually work harder trying to push out these blood. As they work harder, just like any muscle in your body, the, the harder you work, the harder you pump those iron. Uh, your guns become bigger. So these muscles become bigger over time because the heart has to pump even harder. So kind of catch 20 to 22 and it keep kind of piling on itself that make the, the wall of the ventricle become thicker and thicker. As it become thicker, it's harder to push things out. Okay. Uh, as it's harder to put, push things out, uh, Eventually, your heart saying, bye-bye, I'm done with you, and I'm not going to contract anymore because it's way too hard to push things out. Okay, So usually it's su uh, sudden death. You actually have these people flop and die right on the field. You know, um, a lot of times, or if we detect them earlier, hopefully uh, we could see uh, you know, that we could might be able to help them. One thing to also to remember, this is a key term that you should remember with HCM, is the heart muscle become disarray. This is they oftentimes use that same word, disarray. Okay, you could see the pattern. Pattern uh, in a normal muscle, you should have this nice striated type of pattern, a uh, nice line. Okay, in a heart muscle. Whereas uh, with HCM folks, uh, when we do biopsy, autopsy, uh, the heart is kind of all over the place. Uh, there's um, no no particular line that you could draw. From there, so it's disarray. All the cardiac muscle become disarrayed. So please note that. So that's a key term you really need to remember. Okay, and the last one is called RCM, which is restrictive cardiomyopathy. Restrictive in the sense is it mean there's a deposition, deposition into the ventricle walls. Okay, on the myocardium and the ventricles. So you could be, have different type of uh, deposition. You could have amyloidosis, which means protein deposit, uh, sarcoidosis, which is granuloma, or hemochromatosis, which is iron. You could have all of these elements being deposited into the ventricle walls. Okay, again, it's usually environmental. This one is not genetic so much, but uh, we know it could cause by you know just um, fibrosis or uh, picking up just environmental chemicals and being deposited into the heart. One key one key term to remember is called biatrial dilation. Unlike DCM, all four chambers are dilated. This one, just the two, the atrials are become dilated, and this is mainly due to because of the uh, the restriction of the ventricle. So when the ventricle become harder, restricted meaning harder, uh, when these the deposit of these protein or iron, things become harder to squeeze. When they become harder to squeeze, you have less contractility, okay, less inotropy. The inotropy become negative, cannot contract. So then the atrial has to hold on to more blood to push it down because things are more blood actually being left inside here. It's because since things cannot be pushed out easily or readily, uh, therefore you have more and more blood. So you're going to have more increased um, uh, um, EDV, 
okay, EDV, increased EDV. If you have increased EDV, things are going to back up into your atrium. Atrium has to take on more blood as well. So then they'll become nice and round. The bottom cannot become brown because it's restricted because all these dep deposition going on. So they cannot become nice and round. Okay. So, um, can you tell which one is which? Well, this picture here. Okay. Can you tell from which one is which? Uh, the first one you could tell easily on the far right. This is DCM, dilated cardiomyopathy. You can see nice and big and huge, pretty easily to tell. Okay, this one is uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, HCM. You can see how bigger the heart muscle becomes. And this is RCM. You could see the deposition here right in the middle, uh, deposition of all kinds of things here. Uh, next one we're going to talk about is uh, CHF, uh, congestive heart failure. Uh, you have two types, right side and left sided uh, congestive heart failure. Um, okay. So the, the key things to know about this is just basically your heart become weak and usually caused by atherosclerosis, CAD, hypertension, all of those uh, above causing your heart, or MI, causing your heart to become weaker, your muscle become weaker. Okay. So key things to remember is what's going on with the right side and what's going on on the left side. Um, so simply put, um, if you have problem on the left side, things going to back up to the rest of your body. Actually, I'm sorry, it's back up to the lungs. So the left side gets blood from the lungs, so therefore things are going to back up and go back to the lungs. So if the blood doesn't, the, if the left side is not working properly, things are just going to go back and, and kind of build up into the lungs. Therefore you have uh, pulmonary uh, edema. You're going to have pulmonary edema. That's when you're going to hear the crackle inside that lungs. Okay. So if the left side is not working, which mean, also mean that it does not really pump the blood to the rest of the body, therefore you can also notice cyanotic as well, cyanosis, because you're not getting the oxygen to the rest of your body, so therefore you, you turn into smurf, little blue guys. Okay. So that's the left side. Right-sided, if your right side is not working, things are going to back up outside. So things you will notice is JVD, jugular vein distension. Your liver going to become bigger because that's where uh, some of the blood goes to before it goes into your IVC. So your liver will become enlarged, and then you're going to have edema because things are not going back the way it's supposed to go. It's not supposed to go into your lungs, into your body, into your heart. It actually will go into the interstitial space and then go down to your legs. So three symptoms to remember on the right side, jugular vein distension, JVD, uh, hepatic, uh, hepatomegaly, and also... Uh, Edema. So, uh, New York Heart Association and YHA uh, classified into four classes for CHF. So you have class one, two, three, and four. Pretty nice cartoon here that you could look at. Okay, uh, definitely needs to know these uh, to see how what uh, severity of the condition would be where they at. Okay, and based on their severity, based on their class, you could actually uh, prescribe based on this, uh, based on what the treatment will be and what you will do with the treatment. Pretty easy chart to follow, really. Um, if you have class one, um, let's see, you have class two to four, uh, two and three, uh, and then depending on your uh, CRCL and your potassium, your whether you're on ACE or not, whether your uh, whether your blood pressure is controlled, your race, uh, ethnic groups, uh, your risk factors, um, things like that, it will determine the course of action. Corpulmonal, uh, corpulmonal uh, is basically is the right-sided congestive heart failure due to is secondary to the uh, lungs condition. So if you have a chronic respiratory condition like COPD, emphysema, CF, that eventually causing your heart to kind of uh, take a toll on your heart, causing your heart to stop working uh, because your lungs is not working, cannot move the blood, uh, so things kind of back up to the right side. Then the right side work on too much and eventually it give out. So therefore, you have something called corpulmonal. Okay. Uh, we'll stop.
right here before we go into the defects of the vowels. Welcome folks to the next one. The next topic is the vowelar defect, vowelar defects. So two terms that you need to, to be aware of, which is uh, stenosis versus regurge. Okay, stenosis referring to that the vowels doesn't actually open fully. So think of a saloon bar, a saloon door, when, when you go to the saloon um, down in Tombstone. Um, the door actually does not open up all the way through. It's kind of open halfway through, so that's what stenosis is. Okay, that means it's kind of the valves become rough, become stiff. So I always I think of the word stiff, stenosis, stiff. So it doesn't open fully all the way through. Whereas recurge, it doesn't close uh, tightly. It doesn't come together and close tightly. So imagine you have these, um, your double door cabinet uh, or pantry you have these are double doors but when you close them you actually have this slight gap an opening you're not closing completely tight shut so that's what recurge is and depending on where it is you have remember you have four different valves uh, so you could have stenosis and recurge happen into those into those valves the most common valves that you're going to get problem with is the mitral valves the bicuspid valve you could have mitral valve stenosis or mitral valve recurge you could also have mitral valve prolapse where i mean the door goes on to the other way. So instead of closing, uh, it actually goes all the way up, allowing uh, blood to go backward. Uh, instead of going out to the rest of the body, it goes back to the, the left atrium. Okay, So that's the valvular defects. We're going to talk about all of these. Um, so stenosis, again, uh, and what prolapse is. The prolapse door doesn't close all the way through. Actually, oh, the prolapse means it, go, it closed the other way. It's bulging into the atrial. It just go into the atrium. Okay, um, whereas regurge doesn't co close completely close. Okay, so you have these little gap that you could see here when it closes, doesn't close all the way, not close tightly enough. Okay, so causes you could have could be congenital, you could have rheumatic fever, um, hypertrophy, autoimmune disease, or all kinds of things that you could uh, have. The way to see this is to th through. T, uh, echo basically is transesophagus, uh, echocardiogram. So basically we put numbing you and then put down the, uh, the, the probe down to your esophagus and then take a picture from the back of your heart, take an ultrasound from the back of your heart. Okay. Usually it's asymptomatic, so when you have these problems, it can lead, even lead to the heart failure because the heart has actually have to work harder to get, uh, to get the blood through. Um, because the valve's not working properly, um, so therefore you need to work a lot harder. Uh, let's see. You also have the disorder of endocardium, which is the inside part. It could be part of the uh, uh, endo um, endocardium that could affect the valves as well, which is very common, uh, which we'll talk about shortly. Okay. So, valvular stenosis usually valve orifice is constricted and narrow because it doesn't open all the way, whereas regurg is just completely failed to shut completely. Okay. Uh, some insufficient or competent. Uh, let's see, you have aortic stenosis, uh, which means you have semilunar valve, aortic semilunar valve doesn't open all the way fluidly. That means the heart has to work even harder to push out that blood to the rest of the body because now you have that, uh, that valve in a way of pushing the blood out. So there's less blood going to the rest of your body. So you're going to see some symptoms for sure. You have that. You have angina, which is chest pain because the heart works way too much. Syncope, because uh, you're not getting the blood to the rest of your body. Eventually, it leads to heart failure. No. Uh, that's aortic stenosis. Um, good news, I don't know, good news, but we do replace uh, valves. We could actually replace valves pretty easily. There's all kinds of valves. If you actually look them up, we do surgery, open heart surgery to actually replace these valves. Um, we could uh, repair them. We could also replace them. We could replace them with metal valves, uh, ballings and socket. Um, we could actually replace with the pigs valves. Um, we actually use pigs uh, heart to just cut out the valves and then bleach them and then uh, put it in your heart. So uh, all kinds of things, pretty fun, interesting technology that we do. Okay.
So mitral valve stenosis, uh, you could see uh, vegetation here, right around the, the valves. Uh, this is also could be a sign of uh, infective endocarditis, uh, and we'll talk about that shortly. That could lead to mitral valve stenosis. Uh, aortic regurgitation, uh, again, uh, doesn't close fully. So when you have um, when you have the contraction from the atrium down, some of those could be leaking out. Then, but for the most part, it's not too too bad at comparing the stenosis. Um, so it's not just closing fully. Um, there might be some blood leaking out. So, and uh, you might have a coronary problem because the blood will be less blood going to your coronary heart disease because it's relying this this valve to actually close uh, tightly. Uh, treatment: we re would replace that valve, okay, uh, aortic valve. Mitral valve regurg again doesn't close uh, tightly, so uh, they could actually lead to prolapse, uh, allow blood to go back into the uh, left atrium from the left ventricle. So usually we would go in and repair these. Uh, tricuspid, which is on the other side, you're going to have with the problem with the atrium on the other side as well. Okay. So answer this question on the bottom, uh, the comment below. Um, a person has diagnosed, a diagnosis of valvular regurgitation. What pathophysiological process is the person experiencing? Okay. So answer that down below. The next one is pericarditis. This is very, very uh, specific and unique. Uh, you have inflammation of the pericardium. You could have acute, chronic, or fibrous uh, depend. Also, different things could cause it, like from virus to bacteria, from TB as well. So all kinds of things. What you do need to remember is the, the symptoms of these. You actually have a acute onset of chest, chest pain, radi possible radiation to the back. You have pericardial effusion causing the friction rub and tamponade. So these are the key terms, like the friction rub, Okay, very key term to know, friction rub, uh, radiation to the back, these kind of term, uh, tamponade as well, uh, these terms that you definitely need to know. The testing, you would test uh, just looking for culture, like CBC and blood culture would do. Echo is to rule out other things, rule out other um, other diseases, like cardiomyopathy or um, the valves problem. The one that we really can look at is EKG. This is the one that you will see um, whether what kind of problem you have. Okay. Uh, what you're going to see in EKG is you're going to see in PR segment depression, PR segment depression, ST elevation. Uh, these two kind of go hand, go hand in hand without Q wave. So you're going to look look for those. So these are the PQRS. This is normal, but uh, you're going to see in the um, right here. You're going to see in the uh, the Q wave. Without, you don't have the Q wave right here. You're going to see in depressed PR. Okay, depressed PR. You can see it's being pushed down. That's the depressed PR. Um, so that's the depressed PR. Uh, you're going to see the diffuse uh, ST segment, and you don't have the Q wave. Okay, that's the diffuse ST segment. That's the depressed PR, and then PR is depressed here. So but you don't have a Q wave, nice and flat. Okay. So remember these three things. You, this is going to be a part of pericarditis. You're definitely going to see these kind of questions in your Q banks. So infective endocarditis, this is inf inf infection that coming from uh, inside your heart, inside your heart. The first of all, keep this in mind. If you have anything done in your lower jaw, your lower jaw, if you actually have a poor dental hygiene in the lower jaw uh, or infection in the lower jaw, that could actually lead to infective endocarditis. There's actually a channel from your mandible all the way down to the casing of your heart, and that could go into the inside of your heart. So... Um, most often, that's why dentists usually, uh, you know, prescribe antibiotics when they do anything on lower jaws to prevent any infection. So make sure that that infection is contained. Otherwise, you could actually get a heart problem if you were fixing your lower jaw and not treating your lower jaw properly. Okay. So if there's an infection in the mandible, lower mandible, um, then that could lead to in infective endocarditis. Okay. So make sure you floss your teeth. Um, IV drug user could have it as well, or any people have uh, artificial heart valves could actually have it. It could lead to vegetation on the heart and then could cause uh, uh, mitral valve stenosis uh, or prolapse. Okay. This is the vegetation. You could see uh, vegetation in the uh, bicuspid mitral valve. Uh, that's due to in infective endocarditis. A couple things you want to remember is one is called P mitral A, uh, pre mitral A. 
and T wave inversion. T wave inversion. That means your T wave goes upside down, and you have very close your T wave and your QRS are very, very extremely close. Okay, you can you can see nice little curve presentation here. This is very common to infective endocarditis. So you could actually uh, flattening of the P wave. You could see here, and the P QR uh, PR segment become closer as well. Okay, the septic emboli. We'll talk more about the emboli later on when we talk about the lungs. Um, so rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever. This is an inflammatory or autoimmune disease, um, usually um, caused by strep. Caused by streps. Something to note: not every strep will lead to rheumatic fever. Uh, a lot of times now today, uh, if you don't treat strep, even then there's a rare chance of of a person getting a rheumatic fever. Okay. Uh, other sign and symptom: you have carditis, polyarthritis. Uh, testing: you would definitely use uh, rapid strep to see. Okay, rapid strep, uh, ASO also uh, to see strep as well. Um, only three percent will acquire uh, acute rheumatic fever, so most of them is oftentimes being treated. Um, you're gonna see a nice round ring like this. Uh, this is not ringworm, so do not mistaking that with ringworm. Uh, it's really clear border. Border you have lighter color, yellowish color inside, and then you have a dry color in, in the middle. So it kind of look like a sun in a sense. Uh, this is called erythema marginatum. Okay, erythema marginatum. You have this everywhere except your hands and face. Except your hand and face, so you won't have that on your hands and face. Okay, you may also develop jerking movement, like Korea twitches and movement like that, and it could be because of rheumatic fever. Okay, so they're everywhere. So erythema marginatum, something to remember. Uh, cardiac complication on uh, HIV or AIDS folks, you could have like pericardial effusion, myocarditis, endocarditis, cardiomyopathy. All of these could be possible for with AIDS patient. Um, Peripheral vascular disease or PAD, you could actually have, um, you could have a blockage in your arteries that are going down to your legs or your arms, uh, causing uh, hypertension or weak um, radial pulse or weak, uh, um, you know, um, weak pulse. So this is something to uh, to treat right away. We talked about DVT already earlier. Um, Raynaud disease of phenomenon. We'll talk more about, more about that when we talk about, I believe, the heart, uh, the lungs, or the uh, yes, I believe the lungs. We actually covered that in the lungs. So it's basically uh, you have these neuropathies in the hand and fingers, and then causing you to have vasoprospasm. So you're not getting the blood to your hands. So your turn, your hand turn very colorful colors. You could go from white to purple to red. So all kinds of like Christmas light being f uh, flash up on your hand. So you're gonna have pain and numbness and tingling. Um, your hand could be pallor. It could actually change color as well. So. Remember, this is you will see this on your exam. This is called coarctation of aorta. Coarctation of aorta is meaning uh, that it's been cut. Uh, you could see this is a birth defect. Instead of huge aorta coming down from the arch going to descend, descending aorta going down here, it actually become really narrow, tiny little tube here. So all of, all of the blood will actually have to go through this little small area. So. And if this left untreated, your heart will give up because it's actually you have to work way too hard to actually pump out the blood, and eventually you're going to have congestive heart failure, and then your heart stops. So a lot of times you have this uh, it's genetics. Um, we would we usually detect that early on when you were a kid, and then we would, as you get older, we would go in and then do surgery to put a little plastic pipe. Literally, we put a little plastic pipe in there instead, instead of these little narrow airways. Okay. So the key symptom could be asymptomatic, but the key symptom is cold, mortal skin on the lower extremity. So you're not getting blood to your legs. Uh, so basically. Okay. Absent of femoral pulse, so you won't be able to feel your pulse, even your leg on your femoral pulse area. Uh, even inguinal pulse could be kind of diminished as well. Okay, you might see ejection murmur on the left intrascapular area, so you might hear that on the back uh, of the scalpel. The other one that you definitely need to know, this is called Berger's disease, Berger's disease, uh, thromboangitis obliteran. Okay, thromboangitis obliteran, Berger's disease. There's two Berger, we, we might want to separate those. This one spelled B-U-E-R. The other one is spelled B-E-R. So Berger disease, um, 
This one is you have information of your peripheral arteries, peripheral artery like your tibia, plantar, ulna, your arms, leg, and uh, hands. Um, you have inflammation on those arteries. Usually with male and Asian folks tend to have this. Okay, You're going to see inflammation. You're going to uh, have pain, um, basically, as well. Okay, uh, We'll definitely see uh, gangrene um, as symptoms. Next one, you also need to know this is called temporal arteritis, temporal arteritis or giant cell arteritis. What happened is this is when you, is part of the autoimmune, your immune system, start attacking the inner lining of your arteries, start attacking the inner lining of your arteries, okay? When it start attacking the inner lining of your arteries, uh, your arteries, uh, then you actually have these throbbing pain, throbbing pain, okay? Throbbing pain. Most of the time, you can also want to have the sign and symptom. You can have visual problem. It could lead to visual loss uh, if you left untreated. Okay, and I'm going to tell you why in just a second. Um, if you actually look at inside, this is what happened inside the artery. Okay, so you have these. Um, your antibodies start attacking, start attacking the, the receptor, the lining inside of your endothelial cells, inside your blood vessels, and. It's not enough if these antibodies uh, start releasing, uh, getting back up, like macrophage and other folks to come in and attack the in, uh, inner lining of this. The problem with this is you, this is usually happen everywhere, but the most common place is at the, your temporal artery, at your temporal artery, okay? But not just the temporal artery, and most often time, this actually happens in the inside. If you were to look at and trace the blood vessels, uh, this is the external carotid, meaning go, is go outside of your face. But if you were to treat, trace the blood vessel going internal carotid, meaning going inside to your skull, the one that go inside to your skull happened to be the same location right here, whereas your temporal artery might be on the outside here in the external part. So this same location will actually affect your eye, your visual problem, because these antibodies will attack here as well, inside, right by this bifurcation. We have bifurcation here to go to your temporal. It, is, it attacks there and also attacks here uh, at the same location, causing you to, you could go blind, visual change, or even blindness eventually. Okay. Um, so uh, early treatment is, is recommended, and the only way to, to diagnose this, you need to biopsy that artery. Yep. So we, uh, if you want to watch the video, the video actually show how the bi biopsy is done by just cutting a little piece of this artery out and then send for the lab, and they will look for the antibody, they will look for the damage inside the vascular system. Okay. Uh, the treatment is we're using corticosteroids to actually treat, uh, treat the, uh, treat the, the disease. We'll stop right here, and we'll start the last video shortly. Welcome, folks, to the last video of this topic. So we're going to talk about, we already kind of touched on congenital, oh, we're going to talk about congenital heart disease, okay, con congenital heart disease. A uh, huge topic, especially uh, for kids. Uh, this is something that you, uh, kids actually born with, uh, that could be a part of the birth defects, something uh, that you should uh, be aware of because it's actually in your uh, 3P exam and also going to be in your final exam as well, okay? Um, so causes usually is about 10% of the cases, uh, multifactorial, again, could be genetic, could be environment, environmental, all kinds of things, there's things that could cause it. If you do drugs during, you know, pregnancy, uh, definitely, or infections like uh, rubella, Coxsackie, all kinds of things. Diabetes could actually have problem. Maternal age could actually play a big role. So all kinds of things that actually could lead to congenital heart, de heart disease. Um, is, is, is it common? No, it's not. It's quite rare. It's 8 to 10 per thousand births, so less than um, probably 0.1 over percent of, of the birth. Um, 30, uh, usually have a third of them have critical symptom, third of them have no symptom, and third of them have symptom in the childhood. So really depends on the person. So most likely you're going to see this with the boys more than girls. Um, and about 33% of mortality rate as well, infant mortality rate based on this. Um, you're going to see more pattern ductus 
arteriosis, uh, which means a hole between the atrial and atrial septum defects, uh, more common in girls than boys. Okay, uh, risk factor again is run in the family. Um, you have 15% of CH, uh, CHD are associated with genetic condition. Um, so if there's a genetic condition, uh, you could have this like Down syndrome, uh, things like that could be associated to this. Okay, maternal age again mentioned that uh, prenatal. Uh, Perinatal fatal diseases and distress. So, if something like the you know people um, babies could have like uh, born early, uh, preemies, or you know being uh, distressed uh, before birth, um, or you have um, hypertension, um, so that could actually lead to these uh, as well. Okay. Uh, congenital heart disease again continue. We talk about. Uh, different way to screen it. Um, you could, uh, if you're gonna do OB stuff, diseases stuff, stuff that you should know. Um, looking at the O2 SAT uh, positive screen for further evaluation if uh, you um, you have problem with the O2 SAT. And this is kind of explain of how should you you know be looking at the O2 SAT. Huge thing you definitely need to know. You're gonna see this on your exam. This is called tetralogy of flow. Tetralogy means four things. Okay, four four different things that can occur. Okay, um, the videos on there on YouTube that I listed here is uh, it basically explaining the same thing I'm about to explain to you. What happened with tetralogy of flow? Okay. So the first the first thing you have is VSD, ventricular septal defects. So that's when you have a hole, ventricular septal defect, you have a hole between your ventricles. So instead of the uh, interventricular walls, nice and thick interventricular walls, you actually have this hole instead of that. Second thing that could happen is called pulmonary stenosis, pulmonary stenosis. So, so this little piece of the heart, instead of making the wall, separating the left side and the right side, instead of that, it actually make a little tiny hill just a tiny hill right here. Okay, it actually create a tiny hill. So that's what we call pulmonary stenosis. Uh, when it create that tiny hill, uh, the, the blood having a harder time the right from the right ventricle going up into the pulmonary artery, but instead the blood actually going to the aortic uh, aorta and to the rest of the body. Okay, so this is the shunt that happened between right to left shunt. So basically, just going from the right side to the left side because of this pulmonary stenosis, this little hill that kind of block the blood from going up to the pulmonary artery and then kind of direct the blood to go up to the aorta instead. And this is what happened, what we call overriding aorta when this little piece of um, piece of hills happen. Aorta itself also leaning toward the right. This is called overriding aorta. Instead of aorta staying on the left side, it actually leaning toward the right side of the heart. So that's called overriding the aorta. So when that when all these three conditions happen, what normally you're gonna see is when you take an X-ray of the heart, you're gonna see uh, this little line here. The heart actually will be the right side of the heart will become thicker because it has to work against this little hill because it's actually you have to push the blood. Uh, trying to push the blood uh, through this little hill. So the right side will come thicker, so it will create this little right triangle. You're going to see in the silhouette of the heart in the x-ray, chest x-ray, look really like a right triangle kind of uh, shape. So that's the right hyper, right ventricle hypertrophy. You're going to see that. This is the fourth symptom of tetralogy of hello. And that's when you see the right to left shunt. Uh, you actually see the blood going from the right side to the left side. Okay. Last thing I want to cover. This is what you're gonna see on your exam on your 
believe next quiz you're definitely going to see this one so study these and you're also going to see this on your final exam as well there's different types of shocks uh, technically we're supposed to cover this way uh, earlier in topic three so different type of shocks you have hypovolemic shock meaning that you have low volume septic shock that's mean you have some type of infection causing throughout your whole body uh, cardiogenic shock that's mean your heart sometimes something something happened to your heart heart failure mi or even a hole in the heart rupture uh, vasogenic is caused by um, vasodilation okay your blood vessel become dilated could be all kinds of medication or things that could lead to that neurogenic is causing by your neurons uh, causing damage to your nervous system um, causing a shock as well Okay, um, and you could also you have anaphylactic shock, which is allergic condition. You also could treat with epi. Um, okay, so hypovolemic definitely a treatment. You could do IV, uh, crystalloid, uh, blood transfusion, trying to replace the volume um, that you lost. Could be through like all kinds of things. How you lost your blood, burns, diarrhea, vo uh, vomiting, ex excessive perspiration, all kinds of things. dehydration. So hypovolemic, septic. Uh, so you're gonna treat since it infected. You want to treat with antibiotic, vasopressin, um, insulin, corticosteroid, uh, cardiogenic. Definitely you're gonna do cabbage, uh, stent, um, anything to help with uh, the underlying cause. And neurogenic, you're gonna treat with vasopressin, dopamine, atropine to actually help with the neuron. And anaphylaxis, again, you're gonna treat with your epi to help um, with lower down the the allergic condition. I want you to answer this comment down below uh, by commenting down below. Uh, systolic heart failure is associated with the activation of the which of these following? Okay, pick one. Um, you're welcome to watch this ACC cardiac update as well. Um, and that's it. Thank you for watching and have a wonderful day.